Hello, friends. Welcome back to my second episode with Tom Herbert, part two. This is a little bit different than my usual part one and two format. Part one actually was a standalone conversation and we just didn't get to everything that we wanted to. So Tom and I recorded this second conversation a couple weeks later. And if you haven't listened to part one, I would recommend it, but it's not totally necessary. We covered a lot of new ground in this conversation. We did spend the first half hour or so clarifying some things from part one. Specifically, we talked a little bit more about carbohydrates and calories for people who have very limited time to train. So how might you implement Tom's strategy if you don't have the bandwidth, if you have a busy life and kids and a family and things like that? You don't have the bandwidth to add more training volume to your life. Does it still make sense to eat more, to try to train harder, et cetera? So we talked about that. And then most of our conversation in part two was about the nervous system. We talked about the mind-body connection and how when we exist in different states of mind, we feel that in different ways in our body, whether that's anxiety showing up as tightness in the gut or things like that. And then... And this was fascinating. Tom talked a lot about how we can change our state of mind by changing the state of our body, whether that's by practicing specific types of breathing or changing our posture, basically how sending different signals to our body can actually travel back up the chain and change the state of our minds. It was fascinating. I thought this conversation got especially interesting about 50 minutes in. We dove into more of the practical stuff. And Tom talked a lot about the benefits of trying to turn everything off before we start our climbing session. So how to reach a relaxed, neutral state before going into climbing so we're not carrying any unwanted tension that might screw with our movement or our ability to express our power in our climbing and things like that. I thought it was fascinating. We talked about that a lot and different practices that we can use as athletes to turn everything off before we climb and then to turn everything off at the end of the day to optimize our recovery. Tom also shared more of his story in this conversation than he's ever shared publicly before. Tom has had a really hard life and faced a lot of opposition and obstacles. He still is facing some of those things every single day. And you'll actually hear his anxiety uh, talking about it at the start of this conversation, just dreading opening up and being vulnerable. Um, but he did. It was really amazing to hear his story and really powerful as well. So we get into that for the last half hour or so, about an hour and 50 minutes in. I hope you guys enjoyed this one. I found it fascinating and I definitely plan to try some of these techniques in my climbing and training. And Tom and I both hope that it is useful. I had a new follow-up conversation with Natasha Barnes that came out last week. You can find a teaser for that in your podcast feed if you want to check that out. The full thing is available now for patrons. If you want to sign up to support the show for $5 a month, you'll get access to, I think now it's 25 different follow-up conversations that I've had that are available for patrons as long as you are a member. And we've got Nathaniel Coleman coming up next week on the podcast. So make sure you come back for that one. Nathaniel, of course, was the first Olympic silver medalist in the sport of climbing. 
It was really fascinating talking to him about his process leading up, about his goals to make it to the Olympics and how those evolved and about his experience in Tokyo. So come back next week for that. And without further ado, please enjoy part two with Tom Herbert. I apologize I'm late, but um, the, the great irony being that I'm late because I had an anxiety uh, block, basically. Oh, really? So I was stuck in the toilet for a while. Oh, damn. Which is fascinating, <laughs> but it's good. It's This is the... Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's just the way it works, but it is um, just, yeah, it's fascinating. It's fascinating, but... You feel okay? Yeah, I feel good. It's, I've got a, it's the, um, it's, what it is, is, is it's because I'm talking about something that I can be judged on. Mm. Or this is the way my brain interprets. So obviously I know my shit with the nutrition, but when I'm talking about this sort of stuff, this is reaching into other areas which in in my brain basically says, oh, people are going to judge you harshly on this. So be careful. But, it, you know. The, the lizard brain, you're going to get kicked out of the tribe. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That is but fascinating. By the way, I like the hair. When, when did this happen? <laughs> Thank you. It happened a week ago. It's fun. It feels fun. Cool. It, yeah. Um, I didn't anticipate it blending into my ceiling of my van. I think that's kind of funny. It just blends right good. in. <laughs> yeah thanks it started kind of as a halloween joke but um okay i've been wanting to do something just different it's fun yeah nice yeah cool 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 <clears throat> what are you drinking right now it's it's I've, late I'm, where you are no so this is uh, uh in south africa we say it's a bikini rooibos so it's a little bit of uh red bush tea you call it red bush rooibos. Tea. okay yeah okay so it's like non-caffeinated. Okay, so gotcha. It looked like you yeah, were, looked like you were drinking a cup of black coffee at what is it like eight p.m. where you are? Yeah, that would <laughs> that wouldn't be good with a a podcast about anxiety drinking coffee <laughs> at six p.m. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but uh, but no, it's been it's been fascinating because this whole this whole twenty four hours, my my body has basically been throwing a tantrum. Ah. Um, and it does all these weird stuff and I, we'll talk about it, but, but I find that my body will try and sabotage things hmm. to make it harder for me to be, it's a very bizarre thing. Isn't that so weird when, yeah, the, the nerves, the anxiety, the, the butterflies that come up when you're getting ready to talk to somebody or, you know, stand in front of people and talk, it's. It's such an it's such a pain in the ass. It's such an inconvenience. <laughs> it's such outwired it no or um, outdated hardwiring in our brain that I, I wish we could just override somehow. Maybe there's a way we can we can talk about that. But Tom, yeah. it's good to see you again. Welcome back yes. to the show. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. No, I've, I've, been, I've been looking forward to this. Um, yeah, thanks so much for the, for the previous. That was that was super interesting. You know, I didn't realize we would talk for that long. <laughs> I, I knew that we were going to talk for long. I knew that, that yeah. was for sure. But I didn't realize that we would literally not get, well, we got so maybe half of the notes that you had 
you would kind of passed me that's right questions or direction yeah that's right yeah and for people listening that i mean they probably are coming straight from part one so they'll know this but uh, i usually if i put out a part one and a part two it's usually a very long conversation that i just split in half and this time it's a little different you and i talked what was it three weeks ago maybe mm -hmm. two, two mm -hmm. or three weeks ago for the first time and um so now we're circling back to tackle the other half of the topics that we had set aside to to chat about. So, so yeah, this is it's nice. I think we've both had a chance to kind of reflect on our first conversation, and I wanted to start with uh, just a couple of clarifications. I think you had one yeah, thing absolutely. you wanted to touch on, and then I had one question that's been kind of stewing in my mind that I want to ask you about uh, related to the nutrition, you know, body weight, fueling, that sort of stuff. So. Yeah, yeah well, did, you 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 ask first. Go for it, and you might be asking the same thing. So okay, shoot. so yeah, I mean, the the biggest question I had your philosophy about getting people to eat more calories to rev up their metabolism so that they can just have more output and encourage them to optimize their performance with that strategy. So they're just spending more time training, uh, getting more stimulus, that sort of thing. It makes a lot of sense, but I wonder if you have any recommendations for the people listening to this that feel really time crunched. Um, the people that are stuck in the nine to five grind that are pursuing like a minimal effective dose approach to their training for lack of, of time. Um, you know, I just, it, it's easy to look at the professional athletes. I just did an interview with uh, Nathaniel Coleman and I'm not sure if it will mm. be out by the time I release this. I'm not sure about the order, but for people listening, if it's not out, it'll be out next week. Um, but, you know, he was talking about having periods in his professional climbing where he's trained on the lower end of what is normal for a pro athlete, and he's training 15 hours a week, and that's low. Um, and getting ready for the Olympics, he was training 22 to 24 hours per week. So, you know, your strategy makes a lot of sense for someone like that, but do you have any Absolutely. recommendations for someone who you know, has a job, has a family, has kids, only has a couple hours, mm -hmm. a couple nights a week to, to fit in their training? Yeah, that's a great question. So with nutrition, it's, it's a very, um, it's a very inexact science in terms of application, right? It's apart from caffeine, which you can, you know, you can have a dose effect and things like that. Nutrition is a very broad tool and so you know i talk about saturating the training session with carbohydrates to try and put this high energy availability high output but yes absolutely some people are literally getting sort of one and a half hours you know in the evening to try and do their climbing maybe twice to three times a week and maybe do a little bit of training at home so yeah i'm not saying that you need to pack in you know 60 to 100 grams of carbohydrate in your sort of hour body weight training uh, or, you know, sort of one and a half hours in the gym, mainly because most people would be coming home and then having their last meal. If that's the kind of typical pattern, you know, work, head straight to the gym and then, um, and then do dinner. So it's kind of an overkill and certainly it would be kind of an oversaturation of carbohydrates, if we're going to call it that. I think the easiest way to think about it, though, is, and this actually goes into the, the thing that I wanted to clarify, which is which is good, is that there's two ways I uh, I put it. Is in in the previous podcast I talked about how I'm a fan of not putting carbohydrates post training, right? 
the way to think about it quite easily is that one, you always want to do the best amount of work. And two, it really depends on where every other meal is. And also what is the, what is your goal? If your goal is performance, then most people are going to be typically eating their, their carbohydrates, breakfast, lunch, maybe some sort of snack or, or, or small meal before they go climbing in the evening. And they, then they're going to have a dinner that is probably going to be carbohydrate rich. And certainly if you're a family, family person, I always tell them, tell, tell my clients not to not daddy and mummy must not eat differently from the kids if they're sitting at the table. Right. I don't think that's healthy depending on how old the kids are. Right. If hmm. The kids are young. They don't really know, but just in psychologically. General, yeah. I just think it's not good for, for sort of, you know, younger kids, preteens maybe to see that mum and dad or, or whoever is, why are they eating differently? Why are they serving me this and they are not having this? Mm. I don't know if there's any research on that, but I just feel this is a time when you can sit together and share a meal. There shouldn't be sort of pulling and, and adjusting. Um, so the, the point being is that the, the, the context is that if you're trying to do repeat performance across the week, then you are, it, you are going to be best served by basically having that small sort of carbohydrate snack, 30 to 60 grams. You know, like I said before, a banana is about 25 grams. A muesli bar is about 25 grams to 30 grams. Quite easy to have that snack. You could have it literally on the way from work to the climbing center. That's going to be plenty of glucose for that hour and a half. And then when you get home, if your focus is on repeating that performance throughout the week, then you would have your normal carbohydrate meal in the evening. And that could be anything from sort of 60 to hundred grams, depending. If your focus is on really trying to maximize body composition, then I would see it, see if you can actually pull out that carbohydrate at the end of the meal, at the end of the day, because one, it will create a energy deficit, a calorie deficit without really impacting your overall training session because you're, you're, you're cutting it behind the session. Um, and the point being though, is that you can't really do both at the same time. So this is the thing is it's like, do you want to try and maximize your ability to, to recover and continue your training sessions? And if that is the case, then you should just really keep putting in that carbs post session. If you're trying to maybe find the 1% better, the sort of 1% change in body composition that could come from periodized carbohydrate intake, the hormonal profile, things like that, uh, and creating a calorie deficit, which doesn't feel so much like a calorie deficit, then you could knock those carbs out of, this, out of, out of the evening. But you've got to kind of play it and feel how it works. Um, but I still would say that what you need to do in a kind of objective sense is really explore. And the easiest way to start this is like, if you're not keeping a, a, a some sort of training journal, that's the first place you start before you make any other changes. They literally just put down every time you climb what you did, how you felt, and some sort of metric of what you're counting, right? Whether it's, you know, you're counting how many V2s, V3s you're doing, all this sort of stuff. And then you can make a change and say, right, uh, you know, I want to see if I can remove some of my carbohydrates post session and put them into, into my session. And then you mark on your 
sheet, how it, how it goes, and then just monitor that. And then obviously monitor yourself in the mirror. Um, I find that monitoring in the mirror actually seems to be more helpful sometimes than actually getting on the scale. I've had multiple clients get thinner and leaner, but maintain the same body weight. Mm. Um, so, but I think that's the way to think about it is have something to check and see if you can, you, you, whatever you're doing is, is, is obviously helping you and then play with those sort of carbohydrates. And I talk about carbohydrates because it's the easy one, easy one to manipulate. Right. Um, but then what you can do is if you do have like a big day, like a weekend where you're climbing either outdoors or whatever, you can then really try and rev up that carbohydrates amounts and then play with that. Um, but also, you know, I'm a big fan of eating the day before for what you're doing the next day. So certainly people mm. who are going out to climb, it's very difficult to saturate your whole day out with carbohydrates. You probably don't want to eat that much. So what you should do is the day before or two days leading up is you should increase your food intake and basically kind of fully, fully recover your body in a sense so that when you go and do your work, you don't actually have to keep, keep eating as it's so much. And that's, mm. I don't want to, because I, I could carry on talking, but I won't do that. <laughs> but it's just to think about that. What are you doing? The easiest way to think about it is your muscles don't release the glucose back into circulation once they have it and made a glycogen. Your liver does. So mm. if you eat a lot of carbs, you know, yesterday and today, and you go to bed, you don't need necessarily any more glycogen in your muscles. What you just need to do is top up the glycogen in your liver. And that's where you can even choose the types of carbohydrates. So a morning that's filled with more fruit, fruit juices, even sugars have more fructose and that can restore the liver glycogen much quicker. And then really you're eating food, not necessarily to fuel your session, but really just to top up and, and kind of tweak your nervous system state mm. to allow you to push harder. But yeah. Oh man, we really could do another couple hours. I know. I just, so I'm, I'm holding back. I'm holding back. <laughs> I'm I'm going to risk it. I'm going to ask one more question um, on this thread, and then I think we should switch gears and get into the nervous system stuff. Uh, sure. We talked about Aiden Roberts last time, and I want to oh, use yeah. him as an example here. Um, I don't know him. I don't you know. I don't know too much about him outside of that one film that featured him recently. That was so good. I'll, I'll find it and link to it in the show notes. Mm. But you mentioned that. Uh, you and Ollie had worked with him, had decided, okay, we, we've done a DEXA scan. We don't need to tweak his body composition. He's at a really good baseline. Hmm. So here's an athlete who you're trying to get stronger. You're also trying to work towards a peak performance. You know, he's trying to, the burden of dreams, the V17. Are you having him eat carbs with dinner? Like, how do you think about this approach with an athlete like that, who's, who's basically right at, or very close to a good body composition. You don't want to tweak that too much. You're just mm -hmm. trying to get the most, um, gains out of their strength training and their, you know, work towards a peak performance. How would you approach, how would you approach this with, yeah. with Aiden? So I, so there's, there's a couple of reasons why Aiden is Aiden. One, he is very, <laughs> he is, he's a very chilled. He's a very nice guy, incredibly smart. I think he's done like biomathematics in university. He's just finished that, <laughs> right? He was doing like applied mathematics. And then he was like, no, I think I should do something harder and do biomathematics. I don't know. But <laughs> um, if you meet him, he's just the most chilled, chilled 
you know, wunderkind, basically. Awesome. The other thing is that he's pretty much been um, vegetarian, leaning vegan for, I think, most of his life. Hmm. Right. So back in, wow, I don't know how long ago it would have been, six, seven years ago. Um, I remember how he was on Team GB then, and we, we started together and his diet was impeccable, really. I mean, it was not the sort of diet a 16, 17-year-old normally eats. It was just because he had grown up in a home, I think, which was was a vegetarian. Um, he just had, he was just eating lots of carbs and lots of veg, vegetables and things like that. So straight away, there wasn't that much to do with that. In terms of where he is now, he really there has been so little needed to tweak what the tweaking was, was again, to encourage him to try and push his intake a little bit higher and just see what it feels like to push that higher. Um, and then a bit more supp supplementation involved. So, um, comment what we did now, but bringing things like taurine and glycine in, um, and we can talk about that if you want to, but, um, for the body composition stuff, so after the DEXA, we realized that there was no reason to do any sort of cutting, classical cutting. What he is doing now, which is actually starting this week um, or from today, is that he is doing this, um, he's going to experiment with this low residue diet, which we didn't actually cover, which I can cover very quickly. Okay. And the easiest way to think about it is that if a, a large percentage of our body weight, well, not a large, but let's say, in, in metric terms, maybe a kilo to a kilo and a half of our body weight, total body weight is made up of the hydration of our gut contents, right? So if you're eating a sort of vegan vegetarian diet, you're going to have quite a high um, fiber load. Mm. Um, and what you can do is just to practice and you can actually do a kind of an acute weight manipulation here is by really literally cutting out the fiber rich, fiber rich foods and going for less fiber rich foods. Ah, this right? get this, this is why. Yeah, we, we you teased us with this last time. You talked about feeding the Olympic athletes junk food, <laughs> or right, processed exactly. foods. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's so it's obviously not. I'm not. I'm not encouraging people to eat donuts and and, and Twinkies, whatever. It's more the fact that that you can what you eat now doesn't necessarily pass out in 24 hours. It could pass out much longer mm. and it depends on what diet you're having. You know, most people are not eating a lot of fiber, so it might not be the case, but certainly someone who's eating in that dietary pattern, you could have quite a lot of fiber coming in to your diet, which is obviously good in the in the long term, Right. But what you can do is you can manipulate your total body weight and hydration status of your gut by basically switching to lower and they kind of, you can kind of think of it as like white foods, basically. Hmm. So trying to get rid of stemmy vegetables, eat more sort of maybe potatoes, rice, um, and then just seeing how you feel. So I've done, I've worked with a Ukrainian comp climber and that worked very well for him for things like gut anxiety. So, you know, um, basically just having a, a, a feeling that you don't have so much in your stomach when you're climbing. Hmm. So as an acute protocol, this can work. And the reason that we're trying it this week is really for him just to try it and have a kind of practice and see what that looks like. And then also we are trying to see what happens if he lowers his carbohydrate in the evening to just see how he feels with that. Um, I mean, I think he leaves sort of 9th of October and then he is basically eating and living out of his van. So I'm pretty much expecting his weight to be dropping anyway, right? 
because it's unlikely that someone's going to be able to eat enough to maintain weight the whole time living out of a van. Hmm. So, um, well, I mean, that's my speculation. Plus, it depends on how whatever the density of his climbing is. So right, right. Um, we're going to try and be obviously staying in touch along the way and seeing what we can do and if there's any tweaks and things like that. But yeah, that's really the main thing. So there really isn't anything very specific that we're doing. We're just trying this, seeing what it's like, and then closer to the time of when I, I'm, I'm not even quite sure of his schedule yet of, of when he's trying it, how long he's going to be trying for if he's doing other projects and all this sort of stuff. So we're just going to kind of tweak it along the way. Um, and it might be the case that because it's going to be such a long journey, or I don't, I'm not even sure how big a window he wants to work it, but it might be just actually doing the opposite and saying, well, eat buddy, just keep eating and feeling good and work towards that. Um, but yeah, I've given him one new supplement, which is a choline supplement called alpha GPC, um, which is a kind of little secret thing, which I've now exposed to everybody. <laughs> <laughs> it's just an interesting thing. So one of the, the main neurotransmitters that we have in our nervous system is called acetylcholine and alpha GPC is a choline, is a choline donator basically. Um, and what's interesting about it is as we train, we can kind of deplete our levels of acetylcholine. And what's interesting is that alpha GPC might be a way to main for athletes generally to maintain higher levels of this. Um, and if you're not eating animal products, which are your main sources of choline, I was going to ask that. Yeah, this could be, could be a beneficial thing. So I experimented with it. Um, when I did, I didn't even talk about it. So I did 30 days of climbing in the gym back to back. Oh, wow. Um, and one of the things I did was use alpha GPC every, every session. Um, so this wasn't bouldering. This was like a circuit board at the, at the local gym that I had a very specific little protocol that I did. And I just did it. Every, I basically did it for one week and I thought, wow, I feel great. What happens if I carry on? And then I did it for two weeks. And then I was like, well, this is interesting. I feel so good. Let me just carry on. And then by the third week, I was like, hmm, what happens if I just keep going for a whole 30 days? And then I tracked how much time I was cumulatively spending on the wall per session. And this was post lockdown. And what it was is just, I was just adding on time and time and time and time and time and time. Um, just doing longer circuits on the board? Yeah, basically. Okay. So I just do more. I would go to failure every time. So I'd do circuit and then go to failure, oh, wow. log it, take two minutes rest, go to failure, two minutes rest. And then I had this little set protocol of how many attempts. So I had, I basically chose, so this is someone who had come. So, I mean, we can talk about my, my past, but basically someone who had done no climbing pretty much for about three, four years. So I'd come out of the pole dance stuff and then that ended so it wasn't a year of that. And then we had lockdown. So that was whatever, who knows the time is so wonky now. Right. Um, so I basically was starting my climbing right again. And so my protocol was basically choose one grade on the circuit board, sit on it as long as I can, as I come off, rest for two minutes, go again, do that three times one way. And then three times the other way, rest for 10 minutes and then do the same protocol on the grade up. And it basically was like a six, six A and a six B. So it was really not particularly hard circuit. 
And then what I do is I just log all the time that I would spend on the wall and then see if it would be cumulative over every single day. And what was amazing is I hit one plateau and I had one bad day. And then two days later, I realized exactly what the, what the thing was and it was hydration. And that was the biggest thing that I learned. So I had, I had the routine, I would get up, uh, I'd do all my calls and things. And then at lunchtime, I'd go to the cafe, um, have a coffee and then go to the gym and do this workout. And I found out that I always did better when I drank the carafe of water that the cafe would give me on my table. <laughs> and it was so clear that basically if I didn't drink the carafe of water, my pump, I would get pumped quicker on the huh. session. And I noted it. And so on my little diary, I had um, drank water, not drank water. And it was clear to me that, that this, was the, this was the case. So my, my own evidence was that like drinking about a liter of water in the morning, at least an hour, two hours before I did my session, made a categorical difference to mm. to my pump and how quickly I pumped out. So, and that's not really that much. One liter in the morning before a workout's not a massive amount of water. Yeah. Plus, I mean, I had basically one one standard cup of black coffee, filter mm. coffee, and then that liter of water. So, what happened is that, and what's so stupid about this is, is totally <laughs> not what I would do with my clients. I mean, my clients, <laughs> I always tell them when they wake up, have a pint of water, five hundred mm. mils of water, um, and uh, just I wasn't neglect. I was neglecting that most of the time. Um, I think because I thought I was going to drink water at the cafe. You see, when mm. I'd go there. But, That's why coaches need coaches, right? That old, absolutely. That old adage, yeah. <laughs> absolutely, <laughs> it's easier to help someone else than, yeah, than yourself. Yeah. <clears throat> well, you just teased us with quite a few different topics, um, notably pole dancing. That that pops out, I think, for people <laughs> listening. <laughs> um, let's dive into the nervous system stuff. I would love to just mm. ask simply, mm. what captured your curiosity what was it about this topic that that captured your fascination and made you want to learn about it where'd that come from well well do you want me to go to the beginning because it's like <laughs> this is like a life a life thing mm. um let me see if i can just, well i think i think uh what it was was I think growing up, I was, I, I had, I did not understand. Well, I was not exposed. And I think a lot of people are not exposed. Well, actually now they are because the nervous system is certainly in kind of in vogue. Um, certainly with people like Andrew Huberman and stuff like that, who are really, you know, have just absolutely gone nuts in terms of the, the scope of their neuroscience um, education and things. But um, what it was, I think, is that I, I had this disconnect between the brain and the body. I just assumed that I was kind of a floating mind. And then I also, I think as a young person, which I think a lot of people believe is that you have a kind of set personality, mm. right? And I grew up in a Christian home. So that was probably even more cemented that you had a kind of, um, you were set as a person and then you go through life as this set person. Um, and then maybe your body gets sick or, or gets broken and things like that in different ways but those two things are disconnected absolutely yeah mm -hmm. like it's just not really you know there isn't a kind of overlap there um and i think what happened was just because of my past and 
you know, maybe we can talk about it at the, at the end of the podcast or something. But um, I think what happened is that just from different experiences, I realized that there isn't a separation between the two. You don't, there is no mind and, no, and a body. There is the body basically. Right. And the easiest way to think about that is like, where the hell do your thoughts come from? They come from the blob of tissue in your head. Right. But they probably also come from the other tissues in your body. And this is what the kind of new, well, new probably in sort of 15 years of understanding of the sort of neuroscience and things like that is that where we are storing information, let's call it that, is not purely in the sort of the, the, the gray matter of our brain or wherever we supposedly store information in the tissue there. Um, and this is mainly coming from multiple avenues of trauma work, really, I think is probably the main, the main side of things, is that we're seeing that this sort of, you know, there's a, uh, somebody called Bessel van der Kolk has, has a most well-known phrasing, which is basically the body keeps the score. Mm. It's a very well-known book. And um, I think what is so fascinating about that is that I started to realize, not from his book, but just from reading and listening to conversation and stuff like that, realizing that there's different, this is a very, very interesting thing. You know, for example, I, I laugh sometimes when I, when I'm speaking to someone as a, uh, as a client um, and we're talking about a certain thing and I always preface and say, I'm going to give you an intellectual answer to an emotional question. And then we'll talk about the emotional stuff to try and, cause there is a difference there. And a lot of times people will give intellectual answers to emotion. And what I mean by the emotion is that's the body part of it in the way that we think about the body. Very few people when they're having like an anxiety attack or panic attack or something of that nature, it's not necessarily a head thing where it starts, right? It's a feeling that they get. You get butterflies in your stomach, right? Not in your brain, mm. right? But your brain starts to try and function or figure out what's going on. You don't necessarily fall in love with your head. If anything, that gets totally blocked, right? <laughs> um, mm -hmm. You know, anyone who's had a, a serious breakup with somebody, that physically hurts. It doesn't you know, the brain part is hard because you have all of this stuff, all the conversations, the what ifs or whatever, as you go through, but that hurts like in the gut, right? In the body, you get physically sick. So we understand this in that sense. Um, and so what it was, was just experiences I had with different practitioners and conversations and more I was reading is that, you know, and in, in my own life and what I experienced is this is what I'm really very much ex excited about. And I have a, on the other side of it is I have a deep um, empathy for people when I'm talking to them about disordered eating or body composition stuff, because I know absolutely that a lot of these things that people are experiencing, they cannot intellectualize. This is not something that we can, this is where talk therapy doesn't actually breaks down. Mm. because it doesn't really work on that level um, on the emotional level on no on the intellectual level 
<clears throat> so okay. the way that you feel about yourself and things like that is this continuous cycle of how you you are feeling, right? But also how it's feeding back into the brain. And this is why it's actually quite difficult to to, to really start talking about a divide between the brain and the body, because it really isn't. And that's the, I think the language will change in the next, you know, 20, 30 years is that we, they're going to, we're going to come up with some sort of whatever soma, somatic or whatever thing to, to, to describe who we are as a unit rather than this separation. So that was not a very straightforward. (laughs) (laughs) It's okay. Long form podcast. Um, I'm curious. I want to clarify something that you said when you're talking Mm. about working with a practitioner or working with someone giving an intellectual answer to an emotional question, which side of the conversation are you on in those instances? Is that you as a client going to someone or is that you working as the useful coach? Oh, that's me as a coach. Okay. Can you give an example of how that might show up in a conversation with an athlete? Yeah. Um, easiest way to do it is, is, is that say, same, um, say I'm working with somebody who has very specific food fears. Um, so this is more than just somebody who doesn't like eating carbohydrates, let's say, but this is somebody who is really struggling say for somebody who is, they can't eat anything that's been prepared in a restaurant because they don't know the calorie content of it. Mm. Right. And so a lot of times they're put in a situation where they would just shut down because I don't know, they've got friends coming around or their boyfriend's friends have come around and they're ordering pizza and there's a whole bunch of stuff that. So what tends to happen is that the next day I will get, I'll get some messages from somebody saying, I had a really hard time. I feel ashamed. I feel like I can't get over this. I feel like, you know, very, very emotive languages, shame, hate, disgust, all of these sort of very strong things. And so what I do is normally either, you know, I'll I'll answer in text shortly and then, you know, we will schedule the call. And because I think that's much more important is I always try and tackle it from two, two angles. And what I mean is I'll say to them, I'm going to give you an intellectual answer to the emotional question. And I will do something quite boring and vanilla and actually talk about the mathematics of fat gain, right? Mm. For a few minutes to just say, I want you to understand that what you've done here, what you have maybe, because I work with some people who do maybe have a binge cycle or something like that. And I'll, and I'll try and say to them, okay, from this very boring mathematical level, it is impossible for you to have put more than, let's say, 70 grams of fat on to your body by going crazy yesterday, right? And I say, right, that's out of the way. Now let's talk about how you feel. Mm. And then that's a very different conversation that's a conversation about that it's um not a big deal right if you're binging it's not a big deal get rid of the teeth of the matter it's not a monster that you have to fight against right and to understand that this is just a a reflex of whatever's going on and then it's lots of lots of questions about you know what what was happening the day before or the day before that and it is inevitably something. Mm. I saw so and so. I had an argument with so and so. I woke up 
this and this didn't happen. You know, I got bad news about someone in my family, mm. right? And all that sort of stuff. And that's not an intellectual, when somebody is feeling like that, because this is the thing with the, with the nervous system, right? Is that, and, and the brain and everything is, is to do with, it works on a reflex basis. We have things that have, that have been developed over time, things like whether we're right-handed or left-handed, right? And then we have other things that we learn to move through life as a, as a creature. And those all have this reflexive patterning. And some of these things are, are, don't even involve the, ba- the brain. For instance, like the test that you, you, I can't remember what it's called, but basically, you know, they get a rubber mallet and they knock your knee, right? To see if the knee flexes. That doesn't even reach the brain. That's a spinal reflex, mm. right? So we must have hundreds of these things in our body and the way that we act to something. And these are all things that we learn. And that's what I mean by kind of an emotional thing is that what is the, no one, no one who has a, who has a phobia can be argued out of their phobia with an intellectual conversation. Mm. You can't, if someone is in a lift and the lift breaks down and they are claustrophobic, you can't, there's no way to say to them, Oh, don't worry. Don't panic because the fire station or whatever has been alerted that the lift is going to be open. You know, we might be here for only 10 minutes. You know, there's plenty of oxygen in here, right? We're not going to starve to death. Here's the rational argument for why you're fine. And people know that people are not, people are not, people don't think that, that these things are, are problematic, right? They feel it. It's visceral, right? Absolutely. Their whole body is just screaming that something is going to go wrong. It's catastrophizing. And then it loops back, right? You know, my, why are my hands sweating? Oh my God, I'm going to faint. Oh my God, I'm so hot. Why are my hands sweating? I'm going to faint. Oh, I feel like I'm going to faint. Why am I breathing badly? I'm going to faint. Oh, my hands, look, they're sweating. I told you I was going to faint, right? It's a horrible, horrible cycle. Um, and that's that's why I think sometimes it's good to have both. So for instance, we even see it in pain research, right? When people get given information about what pain actually is, their pain reduces substantially. Because if you can under, if you can explain to people what is the mechanism of what pain is, and pain is not necessarily damage to tissue, and it could be a kind of firing or a guarding of their tissue or their brain basically saying that this is a threat or whatever. When you actually explain the intellectual rationale for it that actually can reduce their symptoms of pain mm-hmm. um so there is that's why sometimes i like to sort of talk about it on two two levels one is to sort of say you do realize that what you did today or yesterday has not really made any impact on anything you know in the in the case of weight or their body composition because a lot of people you know obviously if they're struggling with body image or restrictive eating, one of the big fears is a change in their body, which they see as negative. So one of the things I try and say is, well, what you did mathematically in in the science part of it is not going to make that much difference to your body. You might Mm. be a little bit fluffier because of water, but that's not a change in your fat, right? And then we then say, but what's interesting is, is why do you think you went back into that cycle again of eating all the food that you were going to put across the day in your, in one meal, Mm. what what was going on before that, before that, before that. So I always talk about 
try and look upstream what was going on upstream and see if you can change the change something upstream because that's much easier to do than the willpower because mm. at the point of of something going the big emotional surge let's call it you can't do it. you can't you cannot tell someone to calm down right but what you can say is you know upstream what can you change that would affect later down if you're somebody who has, who has anxiety maybe don't have the cup of coffee further up maybe try and put in some better sleep mm. further up the stream right and it, and do that that's interesting is it often simple lifestyle intervention habits patterns things like that because i imagine hearing you talk about this um i imagine that it can very quickly at least with certain people certain circumstances go very deep very quick you know that where oh before you know it it becomes a a pretty intense self-examination and you know the person needs to go to a therapist to to address the thing upstream to take care of the binging habit or whatever it is yeah so there's so i have a screening process when people come in and we have a conversation and i make it very clear that that is not my remit it's not my place Mm. right um uh and what is interesting is i have people who are working with a therapist at the same time as they're coming to me What's also been very interesting, which is also slightly worrying, is certain people in the UK I've worked with is that they have been through the system with the NHS um, and some of the more serious sort of clinical eating interventions. But then they kind of three or four years later have come out of that and are now they're not in a kind of clinical situation of harm, but they're now in this kind of weird murky level of trying to have some sort of stable life on various different medications and things. And I think what happens is, you know, from, from experience with clients is that they've come to climbing and that has been very inspirational them. And in terms of changing their view of their bodies and things like that, and they're two years into their climbing and then they realize that they would like to get better as a climber. And so they're looking for now some help with that. And rather than going to a just an, an, a, a dietitian or a nutritionist, many of them have just come to me because they realize it might, it might be helpful. Mm. And also just because of the sort of the attitude and what I talk about on Instagram and things like that, that tends to be the fit is that people are, I've had multiple people say it just works better because it's, we just had conversations and there was this and, you understand what climbing is about and you know it's not it's not treatment right because that's not obviously what i do and i cannot do that um but many times the conversation does go quite deep um and i will i have multiple times said is this something that you've spoken to your therapist about and uh, inevitably it is but what is interesting is over the years i've had two people who admitted that they don't talk to their therapist about their food Ah. which is, I didn't pry into that too much, but I think it's just one person said that it's just triggering to talk about food with the th- with their therapist, whereas they feel that they can be very open about food with me. Mm. And maybe it's just context specific. I don't know. Um, but I will always, if there is stuff that comes up that is absolutely out of my remit, and I think that would be more helpful than I, I always say, 
you know, this is, have you spoken to, to your therapist about this? Uh, and I will ask people, are you seeing somebody about this? So I don't, you know, I don't advertise or promote that I work with people with disordered eating backgrounds or anything like that. I just, it seems to be inevitably at some point, someone with that on whatever level of the spectrum comes in and, and I'm, I'm happy to, to facilitate whatever level of change there is until we get to a, uh, a point where it seems that this would need more work. And I have referred two people out to um, specific eating disorder dietitians or clinicians, mm. because I realized that, you know, there is, there's a lot more going on there. Got it. That all makes a lot of sense. I want to jump into some of the practical ways that you connect this nervous system work, how you connect the the body and the brain for athletes. And there's two notes that I have, have here that I think are really interesting, and I want to make sure we get to them before we move on to yeah. other stuff. Uh, the first one is the standing hamstring test. I think that's oh, such yeah. a fascinating and simple example of how our how powerful and um, how deeply integrated into our whole being our nervous system is. So I think we should talk about that. And then I want to talk about turning it all off and uh, relaxing mm. after exercise. I think that's something that, you know, we all kind of know intuitively, but I don't know a single person that has a practice really around right. that. And I, I think that's something I could be a lot better at too. So um, yeah. yeah, could you explain the standing hamstring test? Can we start with that? Yeah. So, um, where should I do stop? Oh, let's, let's do it as a, as a practical for people. Um, so basically what I want you to do, if you're listening to this is, um, literally just stand up and then do a kind of passive hamstring. So it's not, you're not trying to stretch your hamstrings. You're just standing up, putting your hands, let put, let's say, put your feet together, heels together, uh, palms on the front of your thighs, and then just bend over and then stop at the point where you feel tension. And then you can kind of look at where your fingers are. It might be at the top of your socks or just at the top of your shoelaces or whatever. It's um, like a standing toe touch. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And different people are going to be at various levels of flexibility. And just note when you do that, how it feels, how tight you feel, um, you know, where, where your range is. And then what I want you to do is very simply, before I explain anything more really, is just to take sort of 10 breaths. Um, and that can just be sort of slow breaths and just do it how you want to breathe. And then later I'll explain a, maybe a potentially better way to do it. But basically I just want you to think about breathing in, um, and out. And then once you've done that, I just want you to try and do the test again. So same thing, heels together, hands on the front of your thighs, and then just lean forward and see, and notice whether or not there is any change there. And for most people, what they'll notice is that they're going to get a bit more of a range. Now, have I pre-stretched you by asking you to do it once? Yes, probably. But what you will notice in the most part is there is a connection between breathing and relaxation. And most people know this, right? This is not, not, not uncommon knowledge. And that's really what's going on there. And <clears throat> Well, the reason that this is quite interesting is because it's so simple and the ramifications are pretty wild. 
if your ability to do any sport or express any power in your muscles is related to the the resting position or the resting length of your muscle, let's say, then the easiest way to think about it is that if you put tone into your biceps and then try and, you know, do an extension of your elbow, if you have tone, you won't be as quick as if you're kind of relaxed and then being able to snap. Mm. And the way to think about it is like, a, like Bruce Lee, right? You have this guy, very cocky, very sort of relaxed, very loose. And then he's, Wah! right? <laughs> like literally the fastest punch, right? Yeah, the Incredible boxing thing, power. Dance like a butterfly, sting like a bee, that whole exactly. thing. Or float like a exactly. butterfly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 You know, is just being, if your muscle is in a sort of relaxed, ready state rather than having tone, then you're going to be able to move it. I mean, we know it with pump, right? The reason you can't close your hands is because you get pumped, right? So what you've got to think about is that with this hamstring test, what it was showing was that you have a resting level of, of uh, or length of muscle for whatever reason. But by breathing, and the focus should be on what we call kind of belly breathing or diaphragmatic breathing, and I'll explain a little bit more in a bit. But basically what you're doing is that you are dropping yourself into a what they call the parasympathetic state, the opposite of that heightened alert sympathetic state. And what that does is it basically changes the length of your, your muscles because you are now in this kind of safe resting position. And that's why you can basically bend over further. And so the implications of this for, for, for sport are that you want to be, and I talk about this as called nervous system reserve, or there was some research done, I don't know when it was, 2014 or something, where they called it the vagal tank. And what it was is basically, as we go through the day, we're going to be lifted up and up and up into this sympathetic what they call the fight and flight state which is a bit too i think a bit too expressive in terms of how we go through life today but more in a kind of if you think about it more in terms of tight short toned defensive protective type of state mm. right stress state we go through life and we have to deal with this and we kind of build this up um, kind of this low simmering anxiety or that's tension. right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think anyone with Instagram knows what you're talking about. <laughs> but, uh. um, and so what's so, what's interesting about this, right. Is that if you, if you are in this position, this kind of protective fighting, defensive, slightly agitated, short toned state, and now you go and try and climb, unless you come out of that state before you start moving, you are going to move your body in a totally different way, right? And your range of motion is going to be impacted, which muscles are going to be firing first when you do a movement are going to be impacted. Um, and so one of the things I, I teach in what I used to call reset send, which is a like a an in-person thing that I did um, a few years ago was to take people into a position where we try and drop them down what I call the parasympathetic staircase. 
And what we're trying to do is create, if you can imagine a graph, is that you have a kind of baseline normal level of um, sympathetic or nervous system, let's call it charge. And as you get more agitated throughout the day, it rises. So now at the top of it, you have kind of less, less nervous system juice to express. Okay. Mm. <laughs> and so what you want to do is you want to basically lower that stress and agitation and tone, body tone to back to that basal rest and relaxed state. So you now have this big chunk at the top that you can drive into. And what I mean by drive into is this, if you are agitated and your muscles are short and some people would call them tight, but if you can imagine just tone and your brain is racing and you've got that argument that you had with so-and-so running around in your head, when you try and do anything climbing wise, you're going to be basically be cranking into ranges that you possibly won't want to go into, or you rather your body doesn't want to go into because you're not really relaxed. And part of the warm up, quote unquote, is to try and get your body to turn off, right? That's what people tend to warm up. They're trying to have a feel for the rock, how their body is. But what you can do before that is literally the first thing to do is you either find a quiet space somewhere and lie on your back or just sit somewhere and just belly breathe. And we do something called slow pace breathing, which is we normally breathe at a rate of like 12 to 20 breaths per cycle, but you do half of that. So it can be breathing in through the nose sort of for three seconds and then just pausing and then breathing out through the mouth for sort of five to seven seconds. And what it is is because as we're breathing out, that actually inf influences the heart rate. And by br bringing down the heart rate, you change the feedback in your body to that, to the fact that you are safe and relaxed. And this is the, this is the big thing I want you to take away from this whole conversation is that your, your heart in a sense is almost like the central governor of the nervous system state of how you're feeling and your heart will, will change the way you breathe. So if your heart is racing, you're going to be, <laughs> which makes you even more agitated, right? And it makes your body even more tight because you want to fight or get away, but you can do it the other way around. And if you change your breathing and you change your body posture, you can then influence the heart. And then there's this reciprocal back feedback that calms you down. So what happens is that if you can think about before you do any of your warm up, you need to come out of your day's context to let go of whatever's going on, right? Whether it's financial, relationship, work related, whatever, to find a, a little space. And it could be even in the toilets at the climbing center, right? <laughs> just sit there. Um, away from everybody, just close your eyes, do some slow breathing and just feel your body relax and then get up, go out and then now do your training. Because what happens is that you have, what you've done is you pull that nervous system back down to this basal level. Your muscles are going to be looser. You're going to have better range. And then when you need to have that, you know, passat, you have that power, the Passat Reserve, right? Maybe that's what we should call it, like Passat Reserve. Um, and that's what it means is that you can basically, you can snap and do it. Um, and so 
that's really the key thing of all this is that not only before climbing and training, but also in life is you have control over your mental state through your body. It's very, very difficult to change your body through your brain Mm. because you cannot intellectualize anxiety. It's very, very difficult to try and create a rational thing to try and deal with the, the, the state. To just sit there and tell yourself, relax, 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 relax. Yeah, exactly. It's like, it's like telling somebody who has depression to cheer up. It's not going to happen, <laughs> yeah. right? It's yeah. not going to happen. Um, so what, what we have, and this is what's the interesting thing, is this, is this sort of bi-directional influence we have on the nervous system. So we, if the spine has nerves going out to the peripheral, these create these have influences on certain organs. So for instance, one is interesting is that the heart is actually by default set at a higher heart rate. And the nervous system, the parasympathetic nervous system is actually pulling down the rate of the heart. So when the parasympathetic uh, nerve, the vagus nerve is telling the heart to slow down, when it's not telling the heart to slow down, basically it's taking the break off and the heart is by this thing called the oh what's it called sinoid anyway basically the heart will then automatically beat faster and it makes sense from an evolutionary point of view right you don't want to have you don't want to spend energy to make the heart beat faster you want to kind of spend energy to keep the heart lower Mm. this is why i'm sure a lot of your listeners would have heard of heart rate variability yes and tracking heart rate variability to see whether or not you are in a sympathetic or parasympathetic state, normally measured in the morning, the aura ring and things like that are, and whoop and stuff like that are now making it more popular. What you can think about is that if you are in this constant agitated state, that is going to show influence on the beat to beat variability of heartbeats. What it does is it makes the more stressed we are, the more metronome-like our heart rate is. When we are more relaxed, again, we have that nervous system reserve, our Passat reserve, (laughs) that allows for variability. So think of it like this. If you are stressed, it's almost like you become robotic. You can only think in one way. You're tight, so you you don't have as much opportunity in movement. Your thinking is fuzzy. Your eyesight is kind of hyper-focused, and so you're, you have less opportunity for expressing, let's just call it yourself, and performance. When you are relaxed in that parasympathetic state, you have a lot more opportunity. And so the same as the heart, the heart has this ability to, do, to if I needed to jump out of my chair, I could. If I needed to relax, then I could. And it, you can turn on and off because you have this big, Passat reserve. And so uh, that's where you've got to think about it, is creating your this reserve by bringing yourself down into this state of this parasympathetic state opens up opportunity for thinking, moving, performance. Um, because if you are defending, you cannot perform. If you are scared, you cannot perform. If you're protecting your body, 
you cannot perform. Mm. If you're vulnerable, you cannot perform. All of these things are about making yourself smaller, pulling away and hiding. And that's goes another, another way. That's I love this stuff. Another way to think about it is, and this is an experiment people can do who are listening. If you were to stand up and just walk around the room and I want you to imagine or mimic somebody that you have met in your life who is depressive or sad. And I mean it not in a derogatory sense to them, but just somebody who you can imagine who is, and if you don't know anybody, imagine someone who is kind of quiet and depressed and fairly negative, maybe an angry person. And if you adopt their posture and carry on walking around the room, you might notice that your posture is closed. Your, whole, your shoulders are sh maybe slumped. You're leaning forward a little bit. Your head is down, right? You may be tense. And in that posture, I want you to stay in that posture. And then I want you to do, try something like doing some lunges or doing a jump or trying to be dynamic. And you will find that you will be very heavy. You will just feel heavy. Now I want you to stop. And I want you to basically open up your, your arms, kind of like a Shawshank Redemption type <laughs> pose. I call it the, I do a stretch called the Shawshank stretch. Um, so Tom and, has his arms just stretched out wide with his chest forward for people. Yeah, kind of like a hallelujah. Basically, it's opening <laughs> up the front the front of your body, kind mm. of, you know, hands open and, and, and real open. And I want you to smile and I want you to look up. And it's this sort of big, open, happy Vessel van der Kolk calls it the, um, I think this is like the pleasure pose or something like that. But basically it's impossible to feel crap like this, right? <laughs> if you even just do this, it makes you feel just happy and open and things. And now carry on walking around the room. You might notice that you have basically straightened up, right? You might be smiling now. And now again, try and do some lunges and jumps. And you might find that you feel very springy and light. Hmm. And if we think about it from a kind of biomechanics thing, it's not a difficult thing to understand. If I'm closing the front of my body off and if I'm tilted forward and I'm making myself short, then my range of motion in other joints and things like that are going to be impacted by that. If I'm opening myself up and I'm basically stacking myself in a different way, it's allowing more room and things are going to function better, right? But... <laughs> What's fascinating about this is the question comes in is, is somebody negative and upset and, and, and carrying the weight of the world on their shoulders because they're in that posture? And is that posture helping them get out of that position? Right? So it's this sort of reciprocal thing. If you are upset, if you are feeling sick, if you're feeling vulnerable, you will make yourself smaller and close yourself off in the front of your body because it's a vulnerable, defensive, hiding posture. If you stay in that posture, good luck trying to change your mind mm. because everything about your body is saying, I am vulnerable, I am weak, I am small, I am upset, I'm trying to defend myself. And you will find it very difficult to change the state of your mind by trying to intellect yourself, intellectualize yourself out of that because you've got a much bigger signal to say to your brain, something's not right. So one of the best things you can do is if you are upset, 
or if you're dealing with whatever, is to put yourself into a position of the opposite. And it can be quite hard, but if you literally open up the front of your body and you fake a smile, you will feel a lot of times that there is a sort of reciprocal change going back upwards. I'm not saying that it is a fix, but I'm saying that it can, you can influence that going the other way. And again, this is one of the big takeaways I want people to hear is that you can go back the other way up the spinal. So if, if the nerves from the spine are going and the brainstem are going into organs and peripheral and creating a change there, what's interesting is that you can change up the peripheral and it goes back up the other way. This is why by consciously changing the state of your breathing, you can send the signal that you are in a rested, safe place and sort of goes, and that's why you can change your mind by changing your body. Um, and that's a better way to think about it than trying to do it the other way. Mm. So before we, before you ask another question, here's a big thing to think about. If I've just told you that, this, that the, if your front of your body is short, that can make you feel bad. And if you feel bad, or let's just say vulnerable or whatever, that changes your performance. And if the whole thing about what we're trying to do here is say, how do we put our body into a relaxed, naturally lengthened muscle position, open, happy, so that all of this feedback is saying, I am safe. I am open. I have great opportunity for movement, for life, for thinking. If you, if that's what we know, then we know that one, we're going to do our breathing before we do any climbing to bring us down. We're going to stand or open our body to bring ourselves into a, into that position. And then we can do our performance. Good luck. If you spend most of your time doing core training to shorten the front of your body. <laughs> okay. So the two things that I see with, with climbers, when I worked with them in person, one is they are terrible at belly breathing because they all have really chronically tight abs and core. Hmm. So great. So if the number one way that you can improve your performance is basically putting yourself into a state of relaxation so that you have your Passat reserve, then if you cannot breathe into your belly, then you're going to breathe into your chest. And if you breathe into your chest, if anyone tries it now, you will feel more stressed and you'll become tighter and you'll probably pump out quicker too. So one of the things you need to do is if you're doing any core training and you have a, let's call it chronic six pack, like 24 hours. Yeah. That looks really good, you know, on the beach or, you know, at the crag with your shirt off, but you are literally hampering your ability to do your top performance. And what you need to do is that you need to do your, your core work, but you also need to, similar to turning your bicep off at the end of the session, you need to turn your core off at the end of the session, mm. right? Because you cannot go through life bracing your abs the whole time because you will cause basically you would just change one, how you're breathing. And two, if you're bracing the whole way through life, that is exactly what it sounds like. You are defending yourself the whole way through, right? What does it say? If you're, if you a guy or girl, 
you're standing somewhere and somebody you find attractive walks past and you immediately brace your abs, what signal does that send to your nervous system? It's basically, it's like, I'm under threat. I need to brace, hmm. right? If every time you try and do any move, you brace your abs, it tells your body that you're under threat. If you're going to go and do a deadlift or any type of lifting, and the first thing you do is smack your abs on, where do you think you're going to get your power from? It's just going to shut down because your nervous system is basically saying, well, what I'm just about to do requires me to basically tighten my entire body because I'm under attack. Now, I'm not saying that if you need to do a maximal deadlift or a maximal squat that you should not create tension to have that brace that is true, but that should come very, very late into your training. What I mean is that you should, when I, when I was a personal trainer and I worked with people, we would spend a lot of time, I'm me trying to turn off their bracing pattern. You've got massive glutes and you've got massive legs and you've got all this other structure to hold the bar in place as you move so that you can breathe. Mm. And then what you're doing is, Personal trainers are basically telling beginners, oh, the only way that you can pick up whatever, 40 kilos off the floor is if you tighten your abs and basically make that the first thing that you fire before you pick anything off the floor. Why? Because you need to create this tension in your body. I think that's absolute bullshit. You need to, you need to create strength and control in your hip complex, right? And then allow your abs to basically be there to, to stop rotation and things like that or flexion and extension, but you should be able to breathe the whole way through your lifting. Only when you get to a certain point where you need that canister type brace, should that come into play, right? We, for some reason, as climbers, we're constantly told that we have an issue with our core. You, you need more core, need more core, need more core. But I'm pretty sure that most of the time when that's happening, it's, it's because people are not being able to drive their feet into, into, the, into the holds, right? Or not being able to hold themselves into position, which in my understanding is probably something to do more with control of your shoulders and your thorax. And the other thing as well is, I mean, in, in my Reset Send stuff, I talk about one of my movement things right at the beginning of the warm-up is this sort of rotation, counter-rotation thing. Um, and I have a video on my Instagram of it. Is The whole thing with climbing is it's, it, in the most part, I think it's basically hip-led, right? You're turning your hips into something and then moving through the movement. So if you just keep training your core so that you have this kind of absolutely rigid canister, you're then limiting your ability to to rotate, right? So it goes back to my previous point. One is we want to learn, we want to be able to move and breathe because if we, if we continue being able to breathe, then we can be more relaxed and breathing sends a signal that we're safe. So if so anyone who's a high level climber knows that breathing is central to the way that they can climb and pacing themselves and things like that. So if you can keep focusing on being able to breathe, that is key because you're continually sending the signal that you are safe. And if you're safe, your muscles are relaxed and you can do the work and have that Passat reserve. <laughs> I love this. Um, the, so the other thing is what you can do, and I think, and this takes practice, is learning to basically do like on-off bracing for any type of work. Mm. So if you're doing a plank or something, yes, turn it on 
do your plank, and then see if you can straight afterwards completely relax your abs. So you get a squishy belly, right? And mainly it's, it's with women I find this difficult is if you get them to lie on the ground and do belly breathing, they get very self-conscious when they get that sort of big balloon belly, mm. right? And so there's always this fight to keep, to not have that. One of the things you can do is on your own in your room at home, massage your abs, try and get them to turn off. If you're lying on your back on the floor, you do not need to fight gravity, right? The floor is going to hold you. See if you can just turn off your muscles. See if you can allow your belly to be completely racked. See if you can get your abs to disappear, right? And then breathe in so you have this big belly balloon. And then see how you feel after doing, you know, say 10, 15 minutes of just breathing like that. You should feel lighter. You should feel more open. You should have a lot more range of motion in your shoulders. You probably mm. have a lot more stability in your squat air squat and things like that. And then take that to the wall so that you can practice when you need to turn on that tension, you turn it on and you move and then you turn it on and off, turn it on and off. Yeah. I don't, I mean, unless, you know, I, I'm not a high level climber. So unless you're doing some, whatever, like Aiden's V17, where you probably need body tension hundred percent the whole way. Yes. Obviously you need to have that and need to practice that but that's five moves, right? right? Like some crazy five move problem. But I can imagine for other, other levels of climbing, you're going to have periods where you want to turn it on and off, turn it on and off. Same way that in sport, you're wanting to be able to, to allow your forearms to recover as you're moving, as you're keeping that tension. So I really think that's a key, a key thing to think about is you can have too much core. Mm. Um, I really believe that. We just covered so much. I have so many thoughts going through my brain right now. But um, as you were talking, one thing that I couldn't help but think about was uh, Strong First, you know, the school of strength, Pavel Tsatsoulin, kettlebell training, oh, yeah, yeah. all that sort of stuff, because that's a philosophy that I've uh, dove pretty deeply into. And at first I was kind of like, hmm, I don't know about this, but then it came full circle and that that process of turning it on and off and learning how to flip that switch is so mm. much of what they focus on. And you know, anytime you're doing a, a heavy deadlift for you, whatever that is, or a really fast, snappy kettlebell swing, or a heavy overhead kettlebell press, things like that, like so much of that strength does come from creating this inter-abdominal pressure and creating this tension in your body so that you can, you know, transfer, um, I think Pavel talks about it like an amplifier. You're basically using your body as an amplifier to to express your strength yeah. through one movement the best way you possibly can. But I, your point's well taken. I understand that you don't want to go into a deadlift session tense and flexing before you even start warming up for it. Um, that's obviously yeah. counterproductive. So I, I want to tie this back into climbing and get some of your uh, thoughts on practical... Uh, maybe protocols or recommendations for people. And I'm curious about the implications for climbing performance. Of course, we've been, we've been talking about that, but you know, you talked about going off by yourself, sitting down, doing that breathing practice and relaxing before starting your warm up. Is that something that you would return to throughout the session if you're trying to mm. perform at your best? You know, if you're trying, if you're out at the crag and you have your three tries on your sport climb red point project, whatever it is. Is it helpful to do that before every try? And I'm also curious, is there ever a point where 
Um, Because this is pretty common too. You know, there's certain types of climbs where you're really trying to bring some aggression to the forefront Mm -mm. of your of your mind and express a more express yourself on that climb in a more almost angry, aggressive um, posture. So, yeah, how do you think about those things? Does the relaxation lead into that, or is there another thing that we can be practicing to to bring that forward when it's relevant? Yeah. So the, the, the extreme would be being too relaxed, right? So sometimes you can be too relaxed. And the example of that, sometimes you'll see people yawning and that can be because they're kind of moving too far the other way, but that tends to be something more of a kind of, uh, dysfunction is a wrong wording, but what it is, is that sometimes you can just be exhausted from too much stress that you actually go the other way and you become so the far extreme is disassociation, right? Where you basically shut down or you zone out or you, you know, and pe- this happens with people with, with who experience, um, you know, incredibly acute, intense trauma, right? They will basically just zone out and they won't be able to move their body and things like that. It's actually potentially what happens when, um, I think it's REM sleep. One of the reasons why when you're sleeping and you have that dream and you feel like you pinned to the bed or, you know, you can't run or something like that, that might be that same state that you're mm. in a very, very parasympathetic, very low cortisol, lower glucose state in sleep. And that's why you can't move. But the w- way to think about um, it, that, that reserve again, is that if you can start yourself in that reset position so you you come to the crag or whatever you reset yourself in terms of the nervous system state so you're now kind of calm relaxed open posture smiling then you want to do whatever is required for the type of performance that you're doing meaning that maybe if you're doing kind of you want to focus on performance and doing as many say circuits as you can that is a kind of relaxed state. And so maybe even the type of way that I warm up might be much more flowy and relaxed because I want to keep sending this signal to my body. And as I'm talking um, to Stephen, I'm actually swaying like Tai Chi at the moment, Mm -hmm. but that sort of feeling of like, I'm very floaty. And then when you get onto the climb, your body is going to be very open and floaty as you go through the moves. If you're trying to do something that is going to be power and snappy and expressive, then you should do that in your warm-up. You should do jumps. You should do kind of like lunge split squats, you know, in strength and S and C circles, they will do something like a trap bar. They'll load a trap bar with a little bit of weight and you will do jumps with the trap bar. Oh, wow. Because then what you're trying to do is you're trying to switch that on. When people do uh, powerlifting competitions, somebody goes and smacks them on the back, swears at them, slaps their face, <laughs> smelling salts, mm. right? They're trying to now jack the nervous system up. What I used to do uh, when I deadlifted was you can just stamp on the ground. It's a very, very good way. And you can even do this in climbing if you want to. Obviously, you know, be, be wary of stamping on the rock, right? <laughs> To break your your you know and warn your warn your climbing or, partners before you do it for the first yeah day. yeah but probably don't do that but in a gym <laughs> setting with you know trainers and slightly squidgy floor smacking your foot on the ground sends this shot up your body that just goes right and it and hmm. it turns on you can even like um, you can uh, even do things like if you want to really turn on your your core just sniff a couple of times really fast and you'll feel if you hold your 
your abs and then sniff, it really maximally turns it on, right? So a lot of this stuff, you know, even talking about it, you probably hear my my pace of talking has now gone <laughs> and my voice is a little higher, mm. right? Because just doing these things switches on the nervous system. So here's an example. If I breathe slowly now, my pace will automatically change and my voice will drop in terms of tone, right? And that's just from doing two breaths. So again, that's that reserve. But yes, absolutely. If you're trying to, if you know that you're just about to go and do that hard send, then do the slapping, slap, swear, do whatever you want to do it. Why do you think people are doing the pasat or the scream? It's because there is an expression of a sympathetic expression of like power or whatever the power scream. It is a reciprocal body core turn on because the air is being pushed out, right? Your body immediately tenses and braces as you do that thing. Um, sorry for all the snapping. That's going to be horrible to edit. Um, but uh, the but that's exactly what's going on with that. And anyone who knows when they try something hard and they do that or that is that everything is kicking in to try and turn it on. So you can do that just before you do the the problem. But then absolutely come off that, and in your your waiting time between attempts, lie on your back, sit there breathe, open posture, and again, create your Passat reserve. Mm. And what it allows you to do is it allows you to have multiple attempts. A lot of times in training and things, they talk about um, like the phosphocreatine uh, reserve, like you're trying to basically recover between power attempts, which is why you rest like three minutes to fully recover that energy system in your arms. Think about this in terms of your nervous system as well right? Allow yourself to come back down to baseline, let's call it, or ready state, right? Feel relaxed, feel open, happy, and then turn it on again and, and, a try, and try your attempts. And then obviously on a longer climb, there are micro ways that you can do this, right? And it's this, if, you can, if you can think of the nervous system as the same as your forearms, where you don't want to be constantly maximally pushing it, pushing it, pushing it, because mm. you, you're going to get pumped out. Think about taking rests and maybe think about that in terms of your nervous system as well. How do I rest? And the primary way of doing that is going to be um, the breathing side of things. Mm. Well, Tom, I think the name of this podcast episode is going to have to be learn how to relax to improve your Passat reserves. <laughs> it's, it's going to go viral. Awesome. I love it. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Yeah. We're um, just, uh, it's going to be an easy one for climberisms. Um, yeah, you're true. <laughs> um, what did I want to ask you? So as far as uh, you shared the example of laying, you know, going to your room so you're, you're alone, so you don't feel self-conscious, laying on your back, breathing into your belly, uh, massaging your abdomen to relax. Mm. That's a great example. I'm curious, do you like to promote a specific daily nightly routine as far as mm. um you know you finish training in the afternoon or the evening and what do you do what do you recommend people do to just turn everything off and go into recovery as soon as possible or effectively as possible yeah so what is also very interesting yeah so what is very interesting about and this is a, a you know i wish i could say that i do this every day but i absolutely don't um uh what we do know about 
being in his parasympathetic state is that parasympathetic state or being in a in greater heart rate variability and all this sort of stuff, cardio, um, uh, I can't remember the actual term, is that actually this is also when all the recovery happens. This is also a low inflammatory state. Even with some of the, the, the research around COVID at the moment is looking at people being involved with this heightened anxiety around it and actually impacting their ability to recover mm. from the symptoms of it. Because what happens is, again, if you can think about it, that when we're in that parasympathetic state, we're body, our body is in, a, in, in the state of being safe and relaxed and can do the things that it needs to do. And the opposite is when we are hyper-stressed is that's when we actually cause what they call like a cytochrome storms or slow recovery. And you might even find that your general recovery from injuries and, you know, irritating little things are harder or slower to recover from when you are dealing with life stress. Um, and that's not necessarily going to be fixed by food. That's going to be fixed by spending some more time walking, spending more, more time, you know, maybe just doing some foam rolling, not because foam rolling is magic, but because it gives you a block of time when you are just actually being nice to yourself and, you know, rolling around, listening to a podcast and, and just spending time and getting in tune with your body. But in terms of actual practice, in terms of research, and there's some research on athletes and their ability to recover from uh, races and things like that is what they call um, slow paced breathing. And what you can think about is that if before bed or, you know, lying in bed, what you can do is basically give yourself, put a timer on for 15 minutes and then do a breath, which is basically sort of three seconds in through the nose and then purse your lips and then breathe out for sort of second, seven seconds or so. And you'll feel that kind of normal pace that will happen. But the point being is that you're allowing the air to come through your nose, which is going to, um, is also a vasodilator. It causes a little bit of resistance. Um, and then by breathing out through slightly pursed lips causes some resistance and it ends up allowing you to train your diaphragm so that diaphragm muscle is going to be able to push, is going to be pushing the air out. So it's pushing up and pushing the air out. And that's going to be a kind of a training effect, but the longer exhale and the shorter inhale causes your heart rate to come down. And they they've shown in, I think two studies now that athletes who are doing slow paced breathing were able to recover faster and better over their period of time and thus obviously have better performance by basically doing sort of 15 minutes of what they call slow paced breathing before bed. Mm. Um, and it's also a great thing because you will feel sleepy. You will feel relaxed. And also it when you are doing so this dreamy, just to think about it. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> it sounds great. Absolutely. Yeah. So by doing that breathing as well is that you will start to turn off those processing centers in your brain that are trying to deal with the argument that you had with so-and-so or whatever, or, or financial troubles or whatever that's going on in your life. So I think in terms of just an intervention, that's probably one of the easiest ones to do if you can do it, even if it's just once a week, you know, Wednesday night is my night to do my mm. breathing. Um, a lot of things I think can really help with sleep in that sense. A lot of times I will come upstairs, I'll put some like kind of nice music on, turn my lights off and just lie on my bedroom floor, right? And just have a sense of where I am. 
like where is my tension or whatever like that and then end up doing some sort of you know makeshift stretching protocol but that's not intense it's more like you know kind of lying on your back and then turning your body and seeing you know doing a bit of a twist or you know just basically being in touch with with your body like that and again what that does because of the lighting drops you into that parasympathetic state mm. and then you get into bed a lot of people who do like yoga before bed or something again same sort of thing is you're just pulling that down and then you're being able to go into sleep um and the one thing uh, what i've noticed uh is there are three positions that most people sleep in is basically on their back or on their left side or right side and you get a few people who sleep on their front and what I've noticed with myself is that when I'm feeling confident and relaxed about the day that I've had, I will get into bed and I'll be lying on my back. And I feel completely fine to go to sleep like that. If there is something that is bothering me or I'm anxious or just a little bit like whatever, overexcited or whatever you want to say, I will sleep on my right hand side in a kind of you know typical fetal position, right? And I find it very hard to lie on my back in that open position because I just feel, I don't feel like being in that position. Right. And then I haven't quite worked out what left-hand side means <laughs> because every now and then I will get into bed and I will go, I'm le- I'm sleeping on my left tonight. And it always feels weird because I'm just like, Hmm, why am I sleeping on my left? And inevitably you'll switch in the middle of the night, of course. But I do find it, if obviously other factors like temperature of the of the room and everything is relatively the same, notice your posture when you get into bed, because think about what that is, again, sending to your, to your nervous system. If I'm getting into bed and immediately making myself into a little ball, why? Why, why, is, it, why is it difficult to just open yourself up and, and just lie there? Obviously, I'm a single man, so this makes my life a lot easier. But... <laughs> you know there is it's, it's to think about where, what is the position of your body in bed um and and this this is something to just carry on through the day as you're going about the day how am i standing what, what am i doing am i closed off why am i closed off and if i'm closed off then you know why why am i trying to why why is that and maybe spend some time opening your body so it, it, the other thing i to do post climbing is you can do kind of self-massage either before climbing, sorry, at before climbing and after to open up the front of your body. And that can be quite easy. So on my, on my reset send, I have a little protocol, which is I call knuckling. And it's basically rubbing your knuckles along sort of your rib line, um, under your arms, down your sternum, to kind of help breathing. And it just opens that up and allows you then because if you think about the tissues of your body, if you are constantly doing work that is shortening the front of your body by creating tension, then for me to say to you, open up your body, you're now fighting against your tissues, right? So again, if you've got chronically tight abs, if you've got chronically tight pecs, then that could be actually impacting the way that you go through life because you're not able to relax in an open position. Your default position ends up being closed. Um, But yes, opening your body, if you can foam roll, see if that just allows you to open the front of your body more. I have a great, I need to do a video of this, but a great, um, which I've never seen anyone ever do. There's a great ab stretch that I do with a foam roller. 
So what you can do is you put the foam roller on the floor, get onto your belly, onto the foam roller. So that now the foam roller is basically, and there's a, got one here, but basically it's like a slightly squidgier blue one that you tend to see. So not one of those hard plastic ones, but mm. if you have a, a kind of thinner, slightly squidgy one, put the foam roller into your belly button, lying on it, and then roll a little bit forward. So now the roll, the, the foam roller is now moving down below your belly button and then do a, if I say a cobra pose, I think most people would know that. So it's like, you know, arching at the lower back and then pushing either with your forearms first on the ground and then sort of tilting yourself backwards into that position. And if you, and what you should feel is the focus should be that the foam roller is holding your belly. And as you are now extending through um Yes. So extension, right. You're now stretching the front of your abs. Mm -hmm. And if you find a really good position and keep rolling forward onto the foam roller, the foam roller will sit right on your kind of the top of your pelvis and you'll go into full extension of your arms and you'll do a big long Cobra pose. And then you breathe and you should feel that there's this band of tissue that basically goes right down the middle of your abs. That is like a bowstring and just spend time there breathing and allowing that to relax and stretching that. And you will be surprised how good you feel even emotionally mm. from doing that, because you're just allowing that, that part of your body to actually open up, which no, I've never really heard anyone talk about stretching the abs. Maybe, you know, massage therapists will do that with clients, but I don't know anyone who's ever said that. But that is a very, very good thing to do before bed. Mm. Just open that that trunk part of your body, that lower abs. Because, um, again, you want to be able to turn your abs on when you want to turn them on. So, Awesome. I have one final question about this and the, the turning it off. With the breathing practice, the 15 minutes before bed, it sounds a lot like a meditation practice. Yeah. And I'm curious where your mind is going as you're doing that, are you trying to, to bring your mind to the breath and focus on the details of the breath, the sensation of it? Or are you just not trying to do anything? Just let your mind do what it does. How do you think about that? So, well, okay. So there's two ways to, to, to do this. Um, the simplest is the, is the, the, let's call it like cooling, cooling and creating space. So that is that typical mindfulness practice where choosing something like focusing just on the breath can be a very good thing because you then have that practice of allowing thoughts, thoughts to come in and float out and not reacting to what the thoughts are happening. So that basically it's being in that still position and losing a central focus like the breath and that is a practice in itself and can be very, um, a, a very good way of creating stillness because you're not reacting to, to things that are floating into your mind and being very curious with it. And that's, a, you know, we could talk for ages about meditation as a, as a whole. But the other one, which is super fascinating and something to do, is if we know that the breath is creating the feedback that you are okay and you are safe, then you can use it as a practice to tell your brain 
that whatever situation you are in and whatever you're thinking about, you are actually safe in that thought process or position. And this is very important and very powerful. And this is kind of the, the central place and the direction that a lot of my work goes. And I want to take my more of my work is if, if, if right at the beginning, I said that the, the way that our body works, and when I talk about body, I mean with a capital B, so it includes your brain and your mind, is we will automatically run the pattern that happens. So you get put in a position that you are uncomfortable in and you feel scared and, the, and this patterning of whatever you've learned or what has caused it then starts to kick off and everything will start happening. Your body will change, whatever, whatever, whatever. This is exactly when you want to sit in that position in the mind of whatever you're dealing with and then send the opposite signal, meaning to get into that uncomfortable position of the mind, that thought process, and then immediately do that breathing, that slow breathing, and start to rewire the fact that actually you are safe mm. because you can, you cannot intellectualize that out of it. But what you can do is that every time that thought comes into your brain of something, do the pattern that you can have control over, which is a breathing, right? Another thing, which is super fascinating is that more and more research is coming out about what they call bilateral um, simulation. When, if I click my hand on my right hand ear, the left side of my brain is actually dealing with that input and vice versa, right? It's the opposite. If I tap my left shoulder, it's my right hand side of my brain that's dealing with that information. Out of this understanding of this, the way this, the mind works is that we have different modalities, one called uh, EMDR, which I mentioned last time, um, which is um, the movement of the eyes tracking basically Thought. So it's called eye movement, desensitization, and reprocessing. And it's basically playing with this bilateral stimulation. And it's being used along with audio cues, left and right, and even vibrational electric stimulation of the left and right hand. And what they're doing is they're putting someone, asking someone to not describe the trauma that they've been through, but rather just to feel it. Say, okay, so imagine that you're back in this situation or whatever, whatever. And now I want you to do this, follow my finger back and forth or follow a, a light or have these senses. And there's another modality which is playing with this even more called brain spotting, which is basically taking someone to have a point that they're looking at and then staying there. And that also involves in both of these modalities, modalities both involve then taking yourself into a parasympathetic state. So there's other work that is called somatic therapy, which is then saying, I want you to go to the edge of your comfort zone of whatever trauma or experience that you can, can um, bring up into your body. And then I want you now to find somewhere that's safe in your body. And what you're doing is this, this is, is that the idea is that there's this kind of processing that is going on that hadn't happened when you experienced some trauma and obviously this can this spectrum of trauma a big t trauma or small t trauma and this effect on people can go you know vast on on either spectrum but for most of us 
what can be super interesting is that we have some inputs that we can play with. One is the breathing. We have that. The other one is the eyes. And I do a lot of work with people where I will basically move my hand around and ask them to basically tell me when they're looking at my finger, where does it feel kind of icky? Or do they notice there's something sort of changed about their body? Hmm. And for a lot of people, maybe 50% of people, there will be a point that they say that just is weird. And I'll notice because as I'm moving my finger and they're watching, they might blink a couple more times at a certain point. And this is just you moving your finger around to different regions in their... Yeah, their visual field. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, and what you'll see is that for some people, they'll suddenly become slightly agitated, right? Or their eyes will blink a few more times and then I'll move and then everything else is very steady. As soon as I go past that point, they'll blink three or four times and then they'll go. And so what you do is you go back to that point and you say, right, so just stay there. And how does that feel? And for some people, this can be very disconcerting. And what you do is you then say, okay, so I'm going to stay here. I want you to look at this point. And now I want you to breathe for me and do that breathing and that reset. Send that signal that you are okay. Um, And there's some other work uh, as well you can do um, in terms of the body stuff, which is a little bit difficult to explain. But what you're doing is you're sending a very strong signal that actually everything is okay. And what's quite amazing is that you can then do that, that sort of testing again with the finger and, and people will say that they don't have that, they don't feel so icky at that point, right? So the way that I do it for people uh, as a part of a warm-up before climbing is part of the rotation work that I do and I, I, I show people to do is that you keep your head still and you move your eyes and you look around <laughs> And you notice whether or not top left-hand corner feels weird. And weird is obviously going to be very subjective, right? But the point being is if you keep your head still and you ask someone to scan, even just in the line of their eyes from left to right, you will notice that you may jump sections. It won't be a steady line. So if you imagine this, so you're you're at a wall, you know, either outside or or indoors, keep your head still, look straight ahead, and then pick a line on the wall and then go all the way to the left, to the corner of your eye, and then move very slowly along that line, that horizontal line, all the way to the other side. And just notice whether or not it's a smooth movement or whether you skip little sections. And if you skip little sections, slow down and move your eyes along that position. If you find a point that that makes you feel a little bit of tension, and it's kind of rare, but if you do, hang out there, and just explore what's going on there. And it, you might just be uncomfortable looking in that little angle. And what you do is you do your breathing mm-hmm. at that position. And then that should dissipate. And the point being, right, visual field stuff can go. I mean, there's visual field stuff with colors, right? People will react differently if you show them a color. They will get tension if you show them, say, blue versus yellow or something. And they will, and there's ways you can do kind of nervous system testing, which sometimes can show this as well. But what's super interesting is that, and I'm not saying that I'm not trying to diagnose anyone, but if you finding that a certain moves in your climbing always seem to shut you down, why don't you notice where that hold is and see if you can just stay still and look up to that position and notice whether or not 
there is any difference in your body. And this can be incredibly subjective. But if you do find that there's some difference between looking top left or slightly left to the horizontal versus right and right to the top, spend some time in that position, breathe, do that slow breathing, change your nervous system state, and you might be able to kind of reset whether there's a threat that's coming from that angle. Mm. The other thing, which is super interesting, if you while you're climbing, you will notice sometimes that the only way that you move your eyes is by moving your head. So you kind of have this box. And what you can do is if in a certain place, and I normally do this indoors, is at the top of the climb, keep your head still and try and find everywhere that you can look with your eyes. So your head is still and you're moving your eyes all the way around at the top of a, of a climb. And it can be quite disconcerting. It feels very unsafe sometimes. Hmm. And that's the time to actually sort of be exploring it and saying, why is it that by not moving my head, but moving my eyes, do I feel less safe? And so I do, with a lot of warm up, I try and get people to use their eyes a lot more and create motion. Because if, if I'm, I'm working for somebody to get to make sure their hips are moving, then their torso, then their shoulders in a rotational pattern, then their neck, and then their eyes, because what's amazing is I have another video on Instagram called something what I call eye piloting. And it is where you move your eyes to the corner of your eye. So you look to the corner of your eye and then you allow your head now to follow and you try and move. So your eyes go to the corner, then your, your head moves and then your shoulders move and then your body moves and your hips move. And you have to follow your eyes. So your eyes will lead the movement. Mm. And when you get it right, it feels very spooky because it feels like you're flying mm. because your eyes are now directing your whole body. And it feels very, it's very cool. But the, the point is that you're <laughs> teaching, you're teaching yourself that actually your eyes can, can guide movement. And the reason, the reason I'm saying all this is because what can happen is that when you when your eyes can look at the entire environment and you can track a lot of space, guess how your nervous system feels safe, right? Mm. I think one of the reasons that we feel so relaxed when we're out in nature and can have, see a big view or out by the coast and can look over the ocean and we immediately feel more relaxed is because our field of vision is massive. Mm. Why do we feel anxiety when we're in, when we're in a small space? right? Because we can't, we are now blinkered. We don't know what the hell is going on around us. We feel very unsafe, right? This is why people will go to a restaurant and sit with their back to the wall so they can see the whole room, right? Yeah. Or some people will sleep on one side of the bed so they can see the, right? It's because field of vision can affect and is another input to tell us whether we're safe. There's even things like but when I do a test with somebody, you basically, um, you can do a nervous system test where I get someone to do a plank and really brace their abs. And then I do a test to see how responsive they are. And then I ask them to stand up and they do something called an archer pose, which is basically like, like Usain Bolt, you know, the Usain Bolt looking up oh, yeah. to the horizon, look with their hands open. It's the same as a sort of Shawshank thing, right? And then you do the test again and they tend to be much more snappy and responsive because what it is, is basically wow. opening up the front of your body and looking up to the horizon, right. Can turn your, 
your system and to say that I'm safe, I'm open, I can see. Another thing is if you're finding that you're lacking power, if you just do a, a contralateral march, so if you can imagine like left, left leg comes up, right arm, you know, you're basically marching on the spot, right? What that sends a signal to your body is that I can move. And if I can move, then I'm safe, hmm. right? And then you'll be more snappy. If you, if you do a plank or you basically do a squat and stay in a single position where you don't move, that's a great signal to your body that you are stuck and you are less safe. And so your nervous system actually dampens. So between, between doing squats, between de doing deadlifts in your resting time, move your body, literally walk around the room, look up, open the front of your body, march on the spot because you are then telling your body, Oh, by the way, I'm not, I don't have my feet stuck to the floor. I'm not going to be attacked from behind. Right. Look around the room, scan, look to the horizon, all of this sort of stuff. It's very, very primitive, but you can play with this. And I promise you, this makes, this makes a difference. Mm. Um, and uh, there's other stuff I can do with people physically to help them facilitate that. Um, uh, and it's all it, the, the fundamentals of it is how do you make your body feel safe and open? Um, uh, the, the byline of reset send is climb open mm. because it's, it's, it's all about that's all basically just how do you, how do you put yourself into a position that is open, relaxed, confident, happy, well, I'm, I'm standing here smiling, Tom, because this is so interesting, but I'm also, I have this image of my mind of um, a not so distant future where people in climbing gyms all across the globe are standing, marching in place and standing there looking around with their eyeballs and massaging their fronts and all sorts of weird stuff. So I hope that awesome. happens. Yeah. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to be um, trying some of this stuff up in uh, Rocky Mountain tomorrow, I think. Awesome, please. Um, yeah, let me know how it goes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, God, it's so interesting. The The idea of, so when you were talking just now, I'm trying this climb and I'm stuck on a specific move and my hand, like I've stuck the move several times from the start of the climb. I just haven't hit the correct part of the hold and gotten my hand all the way in it yet. And I'm going to play with this. I'm going to go, mm. you know, I can, I can stand on the ground and reach the hold because it's not a very high climb. It's a roof. And, um, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to think about where my eyes are tracking when I set up for that move. And if anything feels weird there, because there, there is almost, I mean, it, I think it is a physical limitation. There's like a tiny bit of body sag when I climb into that position from the start of the climb and I need to be very near full extension to to reach mm. the sweet spot of the hold so i think that's a big part of it but i wonder if also there's some sort of tensing that happens when i reach that mm. move um because it feels important you know it feels like the do or die sort of moment on the climb so yeah yep yeah, hold hold it if you can hold it and then just track your eyes around mm. and just see if there's a little little a niggly sort of bit that is just sort of you know not working yeah or something yeah <laughs> I'll be up there just belly breathing. Yeah, trying absolutely. To, trying to calm it down. Um, so I had asked you earlier in the conversation how you became interested in the nervous system stuff. And I have a note from you that goes back to our very first conversation before we recorded anything and we were just getting to know each other. And you mentioned that 
you got involved with some of this stuff because you had a very difficult past. And I think you said that you felt like you'd been bracing your whole life. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is so interesting and, and paints such a potent image. I think just about anyone listening can relate to relate to that or at least having moments in their life where they're stressed, um, going through a hard time and just bracing all the time. But if you're open to it, I'd love to hear more about that. I'd love to hear. Yeah, sure. Um, so I had a, I had a, I had a, a, a wonderful childhood, um, amazing family. My father was absolutely in love with my mom, had an older brother and a sister. And uh, we were what they called um, church planters back then. So both my parents were, were devout Christians and we moved and um, that's how we ended up in South Africa. So I was born in the UK and um, we went to Cape Town. Um, our family has a long history in sort of Kenya and um, Uganda and um, uh, South Africa. And so we had this sort of idyllic um, upbringing. I mean, I, you know, we traveled around Kenya. We did all the sort of Marseille Mara and um, just like the game reserves and things like that back then when there was no one around. I mean, it was just amazing. Um, and then I think what, what I realized that life was different when I was in primary school and, the, and um, it was sort of late primary school and one of the kids committed suicide and um, we never spoke about it in class because how could you really? Um, and that was just kind of the first event that was, I think made me think that life was a bit different. And then unfortunately in about 1995, my father had a heart attack in his sleep and we, we lost him that night basically. And, you know, I remember having to phone my, um, our family best friends basically and, and say my, you know, my dad had passed. Um, well, he was rushed, rushed to hospital and just as we were dealing with that, six months later, my older brother was killed in a car accident. Oh, wow. And it's a very strange time because I really don't know. I didn't even know what I was thinking. I can't, I can't really remember what was going on there because it seemed absolutely bizarre because of this, this situation. And I was um, 15 15 going 16. Um, and my brother was five years older than me. And, you know, he was sort of my, I idolized my dad. He was an amazing man. And a lot of my personality, kind of the service and the empathy. And he was a teacher as well. Um, uh, I got from him. And then my, my brother was, you know, as an older brother, you just look up to them. And so our family was very much just yanked apart um, because we didn't really know you know, how do you deal with this? I was thrust in from going from being the kind of middle kid, because I have a younger, I had a younger sister, being the middle kid who, you know, was kind of more independent to suddenly becoming the only male in the family. My mom, as you can imagine, was having to deal with a huge, I mean, she is an amazing lady, stuff. And then I was right at the point where I was finishing high school and then within a year, the girl I was sitting next to in, in um, class, she committed suicide. Her, her 
her mum found her hanging from a tree. And it was just like, I didn't know, quite know what was going on. Like it was just, I mean, I basically passed high school by I think about 2%, not because I was stupid or, or messing around or, or, you know, but, but I was just totally distracted as you can imagine. Um, and I then, because I just finished high school, 17 going 18, I basically, you know, wanted to do what most kids do want to do and go off and do what they want to do and, you know, figure out what's going to go into university. My relationship with my mum basically broke down, not because there was anything wrong between us. We are, we are incredibly close and we get on very well, but because I had no idea how to have a relationship with this person because I, you know, I had no idea how to, how do we talk about that? You know? So I left to come to the UK and I was going to be studying sound engineering um, and to DJ. So that was my, my goal basically to be a techno DJ (laughs) and go to ministry of sound and, and DJ and things like that. So, you know, basically I made choices, um, I was a scared little boy, basically. I had no, you know, as though I was 17 of age, I really had no idea because I just had no input for the last sort of the defining moments of sort of, you know, older teenage years. And I really didn't know what to do. So I ended up paying too much rent at, at my first place that I stayed in London. I found it incredibly difficult to make friends. Um, and I was in London basically on my own I missed the start of the university, uh, the the sound engineering course. And what happened is that from a space of like 1999, I put like this, the first friends that I made was 2005. So from, from 1999 to 2005, I was completely alone in London. Didn't know anybody, didn't know what to do. I used to go to a couple of nightclubs of my own, but had no friendship, had no support. I was kind of alienated from my mum because I just didn't know how to talk to her. Um, I got myself into a huge amount of debt, just not from, you know, drugs and partying or anything like that at all, but just because I didn't know what to do and I didn't know how to ask for help. And by the time I was about 20, I was in about 16, 17,000 pounds worth of debt. And that shaped really almost the rest of my life because I couldn't do anything social that much because I couldn't afford to do anything. And this is somebody who had no university, right? And no way of getting other jobs. I had to, by then I had to sell all my DJ equipment to pay rent. Um, and I ended up doing like bar work and things like that. Um, and I just had a really terrible time. I was on the street for a little bit because uh, basically I got into trouble. And then I managed to find an estate agent who I then kind of lived in his house and did like manual labor work to pay the rent. And at one point I was basically surviving on milk and uh, protein powder because um, I couldn't afford any other food. And I ended up producing a heap of kidney stones. <laughs> and um, I was not in a good, good place. And uh, basically round about, I don't know what it was, 2000, everything is such a blur, but like this. So, if you can imagine that you have this young person who's, you know, 
at that sort of age of teenager where you're supposed to be dating, you know, sort of 16 to 20, you know, have a lot of fun. I didn't have any, have any of that because of all the stuff, my, my dad and the deaths and things like that get, get to London and you're supposed to have all the fun in your twenties. And I didn't have any of that because I was in crippling debt. You know, I had to get the government involved to help me pay off this stuff. And I was paying like 20 pounds a month or something and, you know, earning 600 pounds a month in a bar and, it was terrible. And then I then had this kidney stone stuff. So I went to the NHS and I got um, something called uh, shockwave lithotripsy, which is basically like shockwaves to break up the, the kidney stone. And I ended up passing this fragment, which was like, I think it was something ridiculous, like eight millimeters, which was no fun. Oh, my and God. what happened from there was, was that I developed this condition, which is like, Basically, it's called urinary, urinary urgency. And it's, it really is a kind of this, the sensation that you constantly need to go to the toilet, right? So I don't have incontinence. I've never been incontinent, um, never even dribbled or anything like that, you know, um, which I'm very blessed to not have to handle. Um, but there is generally almost all the time a sense that I need to go to the loo. I need to empty my bladder. Um, and then what gets coupled with that, as you can imagine, is anxiety, um, and, you know, it's very interesting to work out which one came first, right? Um, and so what happened is that then, you know, my teens got, got kind of hampered, my 20s got hampered, and then my 30s got hampered by this bladder thing because basically my entire life started to shut down. Because by then I had, you know, made some friends. I got really involved with things like dance. So I did a lot of Argentine tango, flamenco, um, did some break dance. I actually started climbing back then as well. And I hated it because my whole life started to revolve around where toilets were. Mm. But yeah, it's um, absolutely, I'm not in a particularly different position in terms of the bladder. Um, anyone who knows me knows my, my world is still incredibly small. The emotions that I go through, through monthly about working in the climbing community is... Um, torturous sometimes because it's it, I, I watch clients and, and people around the world have this most incredible life traveling seeing friends relationships all this sort of stuff and my life is mainly based in in a cafe most of the time um the last time i climbed outdoors was when i was about 11 years 11 years old on a school trip right um because at this point, and I'm, you know, I'm still trying to work on it. Is is it is incredibly well. It's difficult to to do to do this sort of stuff because, you know, I mean, if I if I have to do any major traveling or something, I actually wear either like a, a incontinence pad or something like that, and again. The great irony of this is the fact that I've never wet myself, never in whatever, 10, 11 years, but that makes no difference to the brain. And this is the, like I'm saying is you can't, mm. you can't rationalize this sort of stuff. This is a thing. So um, it's, it's tricky because every now and then I get, so before COVID, you know, I was doing the, the pole dancing. I was traveling. I went to one of my very good friends, um, 
weddings in Edinburgh, which is a massive train journey. And I was really, really making a big difference in terms of movement and things like that. Um, but when you force someone in my, in my, my position into lockdown, it's a blessing and a curse because one is a blessing because I don't have any fear of missing out because the whole world is missing out. And so it sort of legitimizes my lifestyle, right? Um, uh, and so it didn't feel, it gave me a, actually a, a very psych, good psychological break. Um, but, when it, but when it opened up again, it's, it's very hard because it, it's, it's a bit like having, you know, and, and no, no, no offense to, to people who are um, differently abled, but it, for me, it's like a psychological wheelchair that, that, I, that I find incredibly difficult. The effort that it takes me to go, to just get out and do stuff is very hard. Um, it's just exhausting, really. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm trying to do more and more things to try and push and, and find the edge of my, my comfort zone and relearn where I can do and what I can do. Um, so point being is that all of this stuff that I'm teaching you is um, absolutely efficacious, but I'm not, I'm not talking to you from a point of being uh, well or strength. I'm talking to your point of view of that. This is something that on, on multiple people's levels, you know, and even I see it in, in my clients is that we're all on these different positions along whatever you want to call it a, a journey of health or, or, or recovery from whatever's happened in their life. Um, but um, it is incredibly difficult and, and certainly in a sport where, and a, and, a, and a lifestyle which is all about travel and movement and, and adventure. Um, and I feel very strange sometimes helping people from London of all places, <laughs> you know, um, and, and someone who had the kind of climbing, climbing life cut short before it even began. Um, but, you know, what it, I think what it gives me is my background gives me a, a sense of, of empathy for people and what they're going through which I'm deeply grateful for because I can have conversations with people and, you know, I can feel it in my soul <laughs> that they are struggling with something, whether it is a health issue or a mental health issue. And I'm right there with them. And I'm like, mm. this is something that I can understand on that level. And, 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 you know, let's try and work together to see if we can create some space and some opportunity and, then, then, then run that and see how that goes. So I, you know, I've always said I have near infinite patience because I really do. Because I just don't, you know, um, maybe I don't have infinite patience with myself, but I have certainly have infinite patience with people I meet. Because mm. you'll be surprised how many people are going through so many different things that we, you know, we don't know the backgrounds of and things like that. But, um, but yeah. That's that's why I am the uh, the uh, your local <laughs> climbing sports nutritionist really has you know has has his his climbing curbed basically local climbing centres. Hmm. That's about it. So maybe it keeps me humble. I don't know. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, thank you, Tom. Thanks for sharing that. And thanks for sharing your whole story. That's such a heartbreaking story. And it's just, 
incredible to see what you're doing with your life, given everything that you've been through and all the challenges that you face every day with that. Um, I don't know if I have anything else to say. That's just incredible no, what you're doing and that yeah. you're pouring all this energy into other people and helping them out the way that you are. It's just, it's just amazing. Thank you so much for the work that you do. No, it's a, it's, it's a pleasure. I think, uh, you know, if someone says to me, why do you do what you do? I think it's because I just see when you're younger, you have this idea that life has a certain pattern. And what you'll realize as you get older is that it is chaotic. You kind of run and work with the, the chaos. And the biggest thing we've learned as a family is there is, you know, you really can't plan for things. I mean, we lost my sister to cancer um, last year, actually October the 5th last year. She, um, she was battling with lymphoma and she died um, leaving to my two nephews. And, you know, I sat with my mum and I just, we, you know, we, we looked at each other and we were just, <laughs> I, I cannot, I actually cannot describe, it's, a, it's the most strange emotional position where you're, I'm looking at this, this woman who has lost, um, you know, my mum, my mum remarried and four years ago, her, her, my stepfather died as well. Oh um, and it's just, it's, it becomes as a me and my mum, we kind of we talk about it in a in a in a in a strange sense of humor because it's it 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 becomes almost unbelievable and it's not mm. a, a like we're not doing it in a sense of like woe is us how how horrific our lives are it's not, not we would never describe it like that at all it is just it just becomes a very strange like you know i i had my 40th birthday last year and, you know, I always imagined when I turned 40 that, you know, my wife and maybe, you know, one kid or something would, would wake me up jumping on the bed or something or, you know, some sort of silly romantic comedy type thing, right? And I'm sitting there at, my, at the breakfast table with my mum my turning 40 and I just looked at her and I was just like, this is completely not what I expected my life to be, right? But I can't think of it where I would want to be and who I'd want to be with. And just the, the significance of the moment of being her only child now and turning 40. And my father died when my mum was 43. Mm. And, you know, my brother then died the year later. And I just think, oh, holy crap, that's, very bizarre to now be 40 years old with my mum, you know? Um, and so it's just, you know, what is incredible is that there is no bitterness. There is incredible pain and incredible, you know, we were, my sister, my sister and her husband got married in the hospital three weeks before she died or four weeks before she died. Amazing guy called Liam, who um, has been amazing. And we had hospice with my sister at my mom's place. Um, and we were there when she died, you know, um, and it, it's, it's just, um, you know, life, life is life. And uh, I really don't know how to describe it more than that. I think 
I don't have a great positive message or anything like that because I, there isn't anything like that. But I, the biggest thing I can think I can say to anyone is is uh, have time for people um, because absolutely everybody has some life that they have had, no matter the age, and you will be surprised how difficult people have had to go through different things. And I think one of the, one of the, the great joys in my life, because I absolutely, you know, if somebody said to me, do you enjoy life? I do not enjoy life at all. I find it very, I find it a lot of work because I just don't quite understand what I'm supposed to do for the rest of my life with this bladder thing. But I find incredible joy in um, being able to cause a little ripple somewhere else that creates freedom for, for people. And I, that is the biggest thing about my useful coaching is how do I, and, and how I think everyone should work in their local area. How do we create more freedom for somebody else? How do we influence somebody to try and open up their life in a, in a, in a greater sense so that they have more opportunities to just do something more. You know, we all want to make a change in Afghanistan or, or in, you know, Rwanda or something like that. But actually sometimes the best things you can do is, is spend time figuring out how, how does my relationship with somebody else or the person who serves me coffee or something like that? How do I, what can I do that maybe just creates greater space or opportunity for them in their life. And this is what I love about my coaching is that because of what I've gone through and I'm still going through, it gives me a capacity of patience, conversation and empathy, which is very useful <laughs> if, you're, if you're working with people because it allows me just to, to, to say to them, like, you know, when, whenever I do meetings with people, I say like, so, you know, what's got better, right? And to just talk about like, what has changed? What has got better? You know, how have you done, done better? Or tell me how you're feeling or whatever. And then and just seeing how do we play with stuff and create opportunity? Maybe changing breathing for somebody who's listening to this might just be the start of creating a bit more space that can have a ripple effect on, on other things. So it's super, I, I mean, I love it. I get absolutely, you know, I get absolutely a, a lot of joy from, from, from this work. So um, it's funny, you know, you get, you don't get sometimes to choose the, the toolkit or the, or the, the ways that you can serve people you know, you get, you get made from what you go through. So anyway, I will, I will shut up now. <laughs> uh, I don't know what to say either, Tom. <laughs> um, I'll just say that you have certainly made a very large ripple here. Um, thank you so much for all of the insights, all the wisdom for taking the time and for being so open with your own story. I think this is going to touch a lot of people's lives in ways that neither of us, I think, expect. And um, I mean, I'll speak for myself. I've, I've taken a lot from our conversations. Good. And uh, I, I really, 
Can't thank you enough. I really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Stephen. <sighs> okay, what what else should we talk about? <laughs> um, what we got? What's next? What's next? That's yeah. Round um, three. Oh man! Wow. What's next for you? That's a good question that someone asked me once and uh, gave me a lot to think about. Yeah. So what's been super interesting is um, the climbing gym that is very near to my home, uh, 25 minutes walk, have created this really amazing climbing uh, training area. And so I'm having a lot of fun re-exploring, getting my strength back for that. And it's tough sometimes because I have to second guess myself because I think I get this little voice in my head saying, why are you even doing this if you're not going to be able to go out and climb outdoors or you're too old mm. or all this sort of self-talk, right? And it, it takes a little bit of effort, but you're just like, no, you're doing it because it's fun, mm. right? You're doing it because it's fun. It feels good to move your body. It feels good to learn something. You come back the next day, the next week, and you're doing this thing that you couldn't do last time. That is legitimately fun. And you need to, and this is, this is my conversation in my head, you need to start doing things just because they are fun, right? Because you enjoy the process of doing them, not because there is some great goal, right? And this is a great thing for life is we are so endpoint orientated, right? When the whole joy of the stuff is, Anyone who's been climbing for a while knows that like the point is not to get to the top. The point is how you get to the top, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. Right. That's the fun of it. Like literally if someone just wave a magic wand and we could all climb like V18, V19, we'd be totally dissatisfied. Right. right. Because what's the joy in that? Right. So, so what's been super fun is that I'm just relearning this thing. Um, uh, I've just started to go back to pole dance, um, uh, I which I really want to yeah, yeah. So I've just gone back That's and I'm amazing. working with an incredible guy. So if anyone's on Instagram, uh, look for Tattoo Pole Boy, amazing guy <laughs> called Andrew. So Andrew basically started pole dance and then he had a motorbike accident and lost and he's now um, lower limb amputated. So from the, oh, wow. from the knee down and then he went back to pole dance and now he is he is now representing he's entering a world championship. But what's so cool about this is that he is entering the category for able body. So he is so good now that they basically, the selection said, oh yeah, you can just compete in the normal category. Right. Um, so this, this is the first time that this has happened. Um, so uh, we're hopefully going to be working together and this is going to be super exciting for me because then he'll be my first, um, which I'm going to call like aerial artist, I suppose, that I'm working with. Um, which is going to be super cool. Um, oh, you're trading, you're trading coaching. Yeah. No. Yeah. So, well, we're not trading, but the thing is that I'm, I'm I, he, I'm now being under him and he's very interested in working with me. Um, okay. so we're doing that. So that's really cool. Um, and obviously I mean, we're planning to go climbing at some point cause he's never tried climbing. So that's going to be cool. <laughs> um, so that's, so I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting my body back. I'm getting my confidence back post lockdown. Um, started to go out to a couple more nightclubs uh and because I'm, I'm i love dancing i still have my my heart in techno at some level so that's building up my confidence and i'm just stretching that boundary um you know big thing that was a change in my mind of a lockdown is i was like you know what 
maybe Tom, you need to stop fighting this bladder thing. And maybe you need to just have a level of acceptance and be like, if you have to go out to a nightclub, big deal. Maybe you have to wear like a, a, one of these bags or these pads. And that's just what your life is. And rather than fighting this thing the whole time is just say, maybe you need to stop, stop pushing against it and just go with it. And it's obviously tricky in terms of, you know, how confident you feel as a man and all this sort of stuff. But who knows, maybe not pushing against it so much might start to turn down the, mm. the, the, the level of it. And who knows, it might allow me to do more and things like that. So I'm, I'm having a much more um, re relaxed view of that. Um, but yeah, that's my, my goals really are just try and get back into, I'd love to start going back to Argentine tango again, salsa, um, try and understand how that all works with, because of one of the, if, if you're worried about wedding yourself, tango is the worst dance to do because tango, I don't know if you've ever done Argentine tango, but basically you're, it's right hugging, up against somebody. you're hugging yeah. somebody and walking around a room. Right. So, oh boy, but these are the wow. sort of things that these are the sort of things that I want to I need to push on because yeah. you know I need to I need to get myself out of my head and out of my bladder and like try and and yeah I have good days and bad days. Anyone who has a chronic pain or or, or IBS or all this sort of stuff, we have good days and bad days. But I need I want to to sort of start moving in this direction and start playing with this and and just um getting a bit of joy of, of, of that sort of stuff. So um, there's that. And then um, I'd love to start working with people in person again, either in a kind of strength and conditioning capacity, but maybe more in this bringing a re reigniting my reset send program and doing this sessions with people either in groups like I've done before on one-on-one -on -one and, and start to play with this, and start to show people um, what we basically talked to. Um, and then very acutely, Aiden is obviously off now to do his project. Um, he's gonna be keeping a, a kind of running diary. And then I'm gonna publish that on my website. Um, and that's gonna be super cool and having a look and just seeing what how he's getting on with all that. And uh, um yeah, it's just, it's, and then just carrying on with my coaching and, and just enjoying that. I've got, you know, next year. Um, so I've stopped all new intake of clients for this year. So I can just basically re jig and re change the way that my documentation is and stuff like that, just for feedback from people to make it more useful, really. And then relaunch again in, in 2022 and just have a really great offering for people and, and things like that. So I'm super, I'm super excited. I, this is what excites me, you know, mm. um, just seeing how I can serve people and get to know new people and, and do some cool stuff. And um, so, yeah. Amazing. Well, for everybody listening, I will link to Tom's website. Is it useful.coach? That's that it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Useful.coach. I'll try to find uh, your blog, wherever you're going to be posting those, um, diary entries from Aiden. I'll be sure to link to that as well, along with you on Instagram. I know you're yep. very active over there and share a lot of really good content for people. And uh, we've already talked about a couple of your posts. Yeah. Um, and I'll, I'll find those too. So that's at Useful Coach on the gram for people that want to check that out. Tom, thank you once again. 
Absolute pleasure, Stephen. Man, this has been a great, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I love this. I love conversation. So, <laughs> you know, and I love the fact that I've got a new person to, that I've connected with and yes, uh, it's awesome. And I love what you're doing because you have conversations with people and I love listening to conversations. So, you know, thanks for what you're doing yeah, as well. So I appreciate it. I wouldn't do it if it wasn't the most fun thing I've ever, I've ever done. Cause it is a lot of work, but it's, it fills me up every single week. It's such a gift to have conversations like this. And it's pretty special to have that scheduled into my week. I can't not Absolutely. do that. And, um, it's just been, it's just been the best thing I've ever done. So awesome. Awesome. Yeah. Appreciate you saying that. Um, and if people have questions, I'd love to do a follow-up sometime. And of course, people, we've talked yeah. about so many different things. If anyone has burning questions and wants us to go down one of these rabbit trails in more detail, uh, maybe we can jump on for around three. Someday, yeah, someday. absolutely. You know me, any, any time. Um, <laughs> awesome. Cool. Well, let me well, know. Enjoy uh, your evening. Let me know how you get on with uh, building your Passat reserve. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I will. Yeah. I'm hoping it all, uh, culminates in ascend tomorrow i'll keep you posted yeah, yeah please do please do <laughs> all right yeah, and then we'll, we'll see what the internet does with it <clears throat> yeah <laughs> hopefully something good <laughs> all right thank you tom I'll absolute to pleasure ciao bye bye Hey friends, I just wanted to say another thank you to Tom for opening up and for sharing so much of his story. I know it was really hard for him to talk about all of that and really powerful to hear it. I did actually lose a few minutes of audio while he was talking. I had a poor internet connection. You probably heard the audio get choppy for a minute. We did actually lose several minutes of Tom sharing even more of his story and I think you got the gist of it. I tried to edit it in a way where things flowed and weren't distracting, but I just wanted to fill in a little bit more context that was lost about Tom's bladder thing. He really had just started to build a life in London. He was getting into dance. He was getting into climbing. He was starting to make friends. And this bladder thing, as he calls it, and this urinary urgency really did rip the rug out from under him. Just imagine going through life, trying to travel to a different city, trying to get on the subway or the train, just feeling like you're about to pee your pants constantly, all the time. And that's what Tom has been living with for 11 years now. He got really into pole dancing a few years ago. That's part of the audio that was lost, unfortunately. And that really helped him come out of his shell a little bit. He was forced to be really vulnerable. You're not wearing a lot of clothes when you're pole dancing. And it really helped him. And then quarantine and COVID ripped the rug out from under him again. And he's now in kind of a second phase of rebuilding that confidence and trying to get out into the world more. So anyway, I'm sure a lot of that came through. But as you can imagine, traveling anywhere, going out climbing, trying to date women, there's so many things that have been completely off the table from this bladder issue and from this sense of having to go to the bathroom all the time. It just sounds 
like a total anxiety nightmare. So just wanted to share a little bit more of that story for you guys. And again, just a huge thank you to Tom for opening up and sharing everything and for the amazing work that he does. I can't really wrap my head around how he is able to give as much as he's able to give and be as helpful, as useful as he's been able to be for all of us. So thank you, Tom. Thank you guys for listening. Much love to all of you. I hope you have an amazing week. Enjoy your croissants and we'll see you next time.